When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I hope you're ready to pick up and move with me this week. Because last week we spent in Galatia, we started and finished the letter to the Galatians, but it's time to pick up and head west. Now in our scripture study, we've already studied Rome, we've studied, or at least the words to the Romans, we've, we've spent time in Corinth, we've spent time in Galatia, now it's time to spend time in Ephesus. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians honestly is one of my favorites. Six short chapters, but every one of them is an absolute gem. Power packed with principles that we still rely on to this day. There will be some words and phrases, some verses, that as soon as we start reading them, your eyes will light up because out of recognition. There are a lot of famous things in the book of Ephesians. And where, where better to spend some time than in Ephesus? This is a major population center. Galatia was a kind of central Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus is a major center on the west coast. In some ways, picture it, oh, east meeting west, as the Ephesians could look out across the sea and Greece is on the other side. So as, as Greek and, and Eastern influence coming together, it's, it's where the Temple of Artemis was, also known as the Temple of Diana. If you think about in the book of Acts where you had these Ephesian silversmiths that were so up in arms because Paul was interfering with their craft. If they start worshiping this Jesus, they're not going to be worshiping Artemis or Diana. And that's a problem. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it's, it's put this city on the map. And the whole world knows of the Ephesians' loyalty to their patron goddess. But they were right. Paul does have something to say about that. And more and more people are, are following him in the direction of Jesus Christ. He has spent over two years there as a missionary. I mean, you thought some of your transfers were long. No, he spent so much time in Ephesus. It was kind of church headquarters in some ways for, for time he spent, particularly on his third mission. But that mission is over, and he is writing a letter to the Ephesians, Oh, in some ways, just to rejoice with them. Last week in Galatians, Paul was kind of laying down the law. And he was, oh, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And calling them back from their backsliding. There was not a ton of praise in, uh, in the letter to the Galatians. There was much more chastisement. Well, Ephesus is the opposite. The Ephesian saints are doing well. And in many ways, what Paul is doing in this beautiful letter is re just rejoicing with them. Can you believe what we have? I mean, he knows these people. He spent so much time living and preaching and serving among them. And, and they're doing great. And he's thrilled for them. He hopes that they will continue in that long after his mission has come to its close. And in some ways, what he's writing to the Ephesians to help them understand what the gospel really is all about, just reminding them of the glories that come from God through Jesus, those are still things that we can rejoice in to this day. Now, there's one other thing I want you to ponder as we jump into Ephesians. 
And it's the comparison between the letters that Paul writes to all of these branches of the church and very brief messages that John writes to a bunch of churches in the book of Revelation. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation in oh, December, I think, uh, we will go uh, city by city and verse by verse through that incredible book. And in chapter 2 and 3, there are seven cities of the Revelation, they're called. And Paul will give them just a, a little message, uh, more of a postcard than an actual epistle, but so six or seven, eight verses for each one, usually telling them something about them, uh, something that they're doing poorly and need to repent of, something they're doing great and should be applauded for, and then some kind of promise if they'll just continue following the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm really excited for that cha those chapters when we get there. Okay, They're incredibly relevant and applicable. The reason I'm bringing that up now, not only to whet your appetite for the book of Revelation, but of all the cities that Paul writes to, and he writes letters to Rome and Corinth and, and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and, and Philippi, Th Thessalonica. In Revelation, John writes to seven cities that are closer together, all packed on the western, the western side of Asia Minor. And of Paul's list of cities and John's list of cities, there's only one that makes both lists, and that's Ephesus. What's interesting to me, the book of Ephesians was written long before the, the Revelation. And to see some of the things that Paul focuses on as he's writing to the Ephesians, and then a generation or so later, some of the things that John recognizes there, there's some interesting parallels as far as principles are concerned. And so rather than start in Ephesians 1, can we start briefly in Revelation 2? And just a couple of the verses that he addresses to the Ephesians to kind of lay the foundation of what we're going to be talking about this week. Okay, So go to Revelation chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, and rather than angel, John is addressing the servant of the church. Picture the bishop of the, of the Ephesus first ward, okay? stake president of the Ephesus stake. To that servant write this. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Christ is introducing himself to the Ephesians there by reminding them of something about him and something about them, uh, but explaining it in a symbolic way. This man with the seven stars in his hand. Well, we're jumping into Revelation 2. In Revelation 1, John saw that this man was Jesus. And he was told that the seven stars in his hand represent the leaders of the church. And what a perfect metaphor. Great symbol. Providing light and guidance and direction. Picture prophets and apostles as stars in the hand of God. And the idea of needing to hold on to those prophets and apostles... I mean, if they're in God's hands, then I, I want to be with them so I can be in good hands and godly hands as well. So this focus on prophets and apostles among the Ephesian saints, we're going to see that several times in the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. In fact, you can even see this in verse 2 of Revelation 2. I know thy works, John says, and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. That's, that's high praise. You've been patient. You've been working hard. You've been good. And evil, iniquity, really frustrates you. We're going to see some hints of that in some of the counsel Paul gives to the Ephesians in the second half of his book. But then he says, John says here, 
Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So a great gift of discernment on the part of the Ephesian saints, trying to dis recognize or discern between true apostles and false ones. And again, if God has the apostles in his right hand, those are the ones you should be following, not falling stars that will only lead us astray. So again, keep an eye out in Paul's letter to the Ephesians for this emphasis on true messengers, prophets and apostles of the Lord. Now, the fact that John would still be talking about that lets you know that Paul's words echoed for a long time among the Ephesians. And then one last verse from Revelation to set the stage. The last line of, what, of the little postcard John sends to the Ephesians, Revelation 2, verse 7, To him that overcometh, and each of John's little postcards ends with a promise to those who will overcome the world. If you can just hold out and stay strong, here's the blessing God is promising you. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And with that promise, I hope we're thinking Genesis, returning to the presence of God to be able to partake of the tree of life. And I hope we're thinking of Lehi's dream. That if we can overcome the mists of darkness, if we can overcome the great and spacious building and the river of filthy water, then we too will be able to partake of the fruit of the tree of life, which as we know represents the love of God. That is another theme we will see running throughout Paul's earlier letter to the Ephesians, that, Christ, that God's love made manifest in Christ is there for the taking and the partaking. Eat up, my friends, because this fruit is sweet above all that is sweet and pure above all that is pure. It is the most desirable of any other fruit, and the Ephesians know it. They've been feasting on it themselves. And so keep an eye out for that in Paul's letter as well. We are going to be seeing, again, in six chapters, it's, it's really clear the way Paul sets this up. There really is a first half and a second half. And in the first three chapters, he's going to be telling us the gospel and reminding us of the glories of the blessings God has given us. And then in the second half, since we know the gospel and have embraced the gospel, it, it's meant to change the way we live. And so in chapter 4, 5, and 6, our second half of this week, what do we do based on our testimony? How should we live? How should the gospel affect our behavior? Okay, you with me? Excited for this? Absolutely incredible letter. So let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul begins with a salutation that we're probably used to by now. Very similar elements to what we saw to the Romans and to the, uh, to, the, to the Corinthians. Here to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this should be familiar by now. I, I'm Paul. This is, I'm the one writing you this letter. I'm an apostle, so I'm establishing my authority from the get-go. But remember, it's not me claiming it. It's God giving it. I didn't ask for this position, but God called me to it. And so by the will of God, I'm writing you. And I'm extending grace, God's grace. I'm extending peace, the Lord's peace. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the distinction he is bringing up between God and Jesus. God is the Father. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hint of Trinitarianism here. 
That is a post-New Testament development. Okay, as far as Paul is concerned, I want to, I'll speak of Christ, believe me, but I want to bless Christ's Father for having sent his Son in the first place. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Can you picture the rejoicing on Paul's part? Can you believe all that God has given us? Spiritual blessings being stockpiled in heavenly places. And who's the doorkeeper? Jesus, which means there's no door. He just throws it wide open. He wants to give us those magnificent blessings. In fact, we could even add, it's not just the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The gospel promises even temporal blessings in earthly places, both here and hereafter. The Father wants to bless us all. And he does it because of this. Next verse. According as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now think about what he's just said about our, oh, our premortal promises. We've been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, even before creation took place. Think back to the war in heaven before there was a war. It was a, a family home evening. No wonder it ended in a fight. Uh, but it began with the father presenting his plan. Remember, he didn't say, what shall we do? Oh, he knew what, we, what he was going to do. The question was, whom shall I send? And that allowed us to choose Jesus. And we've, we've hopefully been choosing him ever since. But not only did we choose Jesus, God chose us through Jesus to become like him. Think about the way he put it. He's chosen us in Jesus from before the foundation of the world. Even before earth life began, we were promised heavenly life. Heavenly gifts in spiritual places, spiritual gifts in heavenly places. And they're there waiting for us. This is the coach that promised us victory even before the season began. This is the professor that promised that you would not only pass, but ace this course. He's a good teacher. He's serious about this. You've been chosen in Christ even before any of this began. And he chose us to be holy and without blame. Remember in the Doctrine and Covenants when Jesus says, I am able to make you holy? He promised us that. That's what this earth life is for, to sanctify us, to train us to have righteous reflexes so that we could reconcile our will to the will of God. That way we not only come back to be with him, but we come back and are like him. And that's the purpose. It's, the, it's what God planned from the very beginning. And we've been chosen by that very plan. Notice how, the Lord, well, how Paul explains it next. Having predestinated us, and that we could say foreordained, that's a word we're more used to, and the Greek would allow for either translation. They mean the same thing. So having foreordained us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, one of the things you need to get used to for the Ephesian saints, and it's a little different than what the, the way Paul wrote other letters, uh, but Ephesians often has really long sentences. 
that can start feeling a little convoluted, especially in the King James translation. And so it's going to take a little effort on our part to try to follow his train of thought. Okay, uh, We'll try to slow it down and make sure we're understanding what he's saying. So let's go phrase by phrase. He's predestinated us, foreordained us to the adoption of children. So from the very beginning, before we even left the presence of God, the plan was, I want to adopt you back into the family as full heirs. Remember how he said it to the Romans, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. The way he says it to the Ephesians is slightly different. Predestined to the adoption of children, but notice the phrase, by Jesus to himself. Now, is the himself to God or the himself to Jesus? Kind of hard to tell. Uh, It would make sense logically if it's to God, that he's adopting us through Christ so we can be true children of God. But in some ways, we already were. We are the children of heavenly parents. But think about it the way King Benjamin taught, for example, that when we make covenants, we are spiritually begotten unto Christ. He becomes our father. Now, that can be confusing because he's our elder brother. But in terms of covenant relationship, he adopts us to himself so that he can work in us and work through us and work on us so that we can become holy and without blame, as Paul said. In some ways, imagine if you're one of the younger children in a very large family and your eldest brother is way older than you to the point that you barely even knew him growing up. Now, you're still young and that older brother is out of the house by now. But some tragic accident happens and both of your parents are killed, leaving you an orphan. And like I said, you're still young. Who's going to provide for me? Who's going to take care of me? Well, imagine this older brother that steps in like a father figure and adopts us unto him. This is strange. You're already my brother. Yeah, but you need a father right now. And I will take you under my wing and provide for you just like the Father provided for me. In in some ways, especially Old Testament, New Testament culture, that's what the birthright entails. When the Father's gone, that's why you got the double portion, oldest son. So you would have enough to provide for every sibling, every younger brother or sister that cannot provide for themselves. Jesus is fulfilling that role. And to adopt us to Him so that he can then bring us back to the Father. No wonder it's joint heirs with Christ as we become heirs of God. That's been the plan from the very beginning. And it's not just that Christ is a dutiful son and an obedient servant, and it's, yes, sir, Father, I guess I'll go do this and redeem my younger siblings that don't really deserve it. No, no, there's no force against his will. Notice the phrase. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. It's his good pleasure. It's his will. It's what he wants to do. Bringing to pass our immortality and eternal life is not just his work. It's his glory. Not just what he does. It's who he is and what he rejoices in. He just wants to bring us home. He's fully invested. We'll see more and more of that. In verse 7 and 8, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Here's a nod to the atonement from the beginning of this letter. Paul, the great theologian of the church, this is how it happens. Redemption through the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of sins, that's how we receive it. According to the riches of his grace, 
wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, we are going to see six different times in this brief letter, Paul refer to God's riches. In this one, it's the riches of his grace. He, and in fact, he abounds in it. So it is so, Christ and, and the Father are both so gracious. They're so abundant, super abundant in grace. No wonder they can, they can strengthen every weakness on our part. They can pay off every debt. They can fully redeem us. Do you remember when we were studying the Gospels and we studied the parable of the unmerciful servant? Uh, who wouldn't even forgive a paltry debt that some fellow servant owed him. And the irony there and the hypocrisy there was that the king had forgiven this servant basically the national debt. I mean, nobody can spend 10,000 talents in a lifetime. But somehow this servant was guilty of, of incurring a 10,000 talent debt. Jesus is speaking in, hyper, in hyperbole. There's no way you're going to be able to pay this off. But the irony in the story, or the beauty in the story, in the parable, is that the king forgives him. Now, it's one thing, you see, in our country, we have a massive national debt. And you can't just shrug it off. There's not a person on earth wealthy enough to write a check and just absorb the United States national debt. Imagine if there were. That's the king of kings that we worship. The king in the parable absorbs the 10,000 talent debt as if it were nothing. Now that's wealth. That's being rich in grace. I will cover things. Trust me. I can forgive. I'm able to do that. But I also want to back up just a second because I want to prove a contrary here. And Paul, master at proving contraries. There's, he, he tries to find the Goldilocks zone in, practice, in every principle. And in this one, when he's speaking of grace and putting it in, in the context of just this overabundant wealth. Okay, It's abounding toward us. Now, careful. You can almost hear Paul or, or sense that Paul is gearing up for a God forbid moment. Like, oh, you mean he's that wealthy? So I can just put it on his tab? I can presume upon his grace, like we learned in the book of Romans? What would Paul say there? Whoa, 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 God forbid. And that's why here I love the end of that verse. Yes, it abounds. Yes, it's rich. But God distributes that in all wisdom and prudence. And that's, that's more of the justice side. That's the more of the careful accounting side. I can cover everything, believe me. But picture someone incredibly wealthy that still balances the checkbook, that still has a budget and makes sure that he knows where all the money's going to go. Well, I mean, how do, they, how do you think he got so rich to begin with? Okay, careful money manager. They, he uses wisdom in his expenditures and is prudent not to waste money, willing to spend it whenever it's necessary. Okay, this is no cheapskate, believe me. But neither is he a spendthrift. It's, it's the perfect balance. To me, there's something, something beautiful about a Savior who knows just how big the band-aid has to be to cover the wound. Who knows how to perfectly balance justice and mercy 
so that we neither presume upon his grace nor fear that that grace is insufficient. I am grateful for the Lord's wisdom. And what do I need to do to fully repent of my sins, to have that godly sorrow well up in me? God's wisdom is such that he wants us to be changed by the experience. And so, of course, the mercy is coming. Of course, the riches of his grace is going to pay all of that. But prudently, wisely, God is trying to help us become more like him along the way. Okay, fascinating balance here. Then verse 9 and 10, one of my favorite. This is one of the gems in chapter 1. Okay, Every chapter has its own gem. This is one of my favorites. 9 and 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And Paul is going to bring up mystery several times in the book of Ephesians. We've got to figure out what this mystery is. Uh, what? I have to have it revealed to me. It's not, it's not obvious. There's some, I mean, God's working in mysterious ways. And what is this mysterious will that he's trying to accomplish? He's going to do it according to his good pleasure. So just like it's his good pleasure to adopt us into the family. This mystery that we're going to discuss in these chapters... Oh, God's really excited about that, too. He has good pleasure there, which he hath purposed in himself. And so this is something he wants to do. He wills to do. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. He's going to do this. And, okay, well, what is it? (laughs) Explain the mystery. Please unveil it to me. Here it is, verse 10. And honestly, this verse has become one of my favorites in the past few years. Often as I'm doing interfaith dialogue or working with people that are struggling in their faith or trying to reach across the aisle uh, with people that don't agree with me, this passage has come to mean everything. Ephesians 1 verse 10, this is the mystery of God's will. This is what he has good pleasure to accomplish and what he's purposed in himself to accomplish. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's the mystery. That's his will and his wish. It's his pleasure and his purpose. It's gathering. Now, when we think gathering, we probably automatically think the gathering of Israel. And that's a huge part of it. Gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. One of the most important works that we can do in this final dispensation. But speaking of the final dispensation, what else are we supposed to wrap up and put a bow on? This is it. Every other dispensation, not that they were procrastinating or kicking the can, but every other dispensation did have a later dispensation to to do what they were unable to finish. Not us. We've got to accomplish God's work. And what is the work of this final dispensation? That's what, I love the way he's phrasing it. The gospel of Jesus Christ was restored in the final dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times. And as we saw in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, what's the, what is it that God really wants to restore? Yes, he restores church and restores priesthood and restores gospel. But the scriptural restoration, according to section 84, is the restoration of his people. I'm trying to reconcile you to me. I'm trying to restore you to who you really are and who I predestined you, foreordained you to become. I'm trying to restore you to right relationships with each other, with, with relationships with me. 
trying to fix all that's gone wrong. And in the final dispensation, that's when it, the work has to be accomplished. And it's a work of gathering together in one. All things. No wonder all the temple work needs to be done. No wonder all the missionary work needs to be done. No wonder when this dispensation comes to its full conclusion, which is thankfully end of the millennium. <laughs> okay, we've, uh, it's gonna, we're going to still be teaching the gospel and still doing temple work in the millennium as well. But if you think about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, restored in these last days to restore God's people, then in some ways we are the custodians of the dispensation of the fullness of times. And what's our job? What is this dispensation assigned to accomplish? Which means, what are we assigned to supervise? The gathering of all things. All things. Not just scattered Israel. Everything. That's a tall order. And a mighty task. But the task is ours. To me, there's something, again, like I said, with interfaith dialogue, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to gather friends of other faiths into an understanding of one another. As I work with friends in the LGBT community, I'm trying to understand where they come from. As I work one-on-one -on -one with people who are thinking of leaving the church or who already have, I'm not trying to shame them into returning. I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. Because somehow I have to gather their perspective and experience back in to Christ, gathering all things together in Him. Think about that. If you, I remember this hit me once. I may have even mentioned this when we were studying it in the Doctrine and Covenants. When it describes this earth becoming the celestial kingdom and becoming a sea of glass and fire, a Urim and Thummim in which all things are known. And it struck me, how do you make glass? Well, you take sand and you heat it to, the, to such an intensity that it begins to, to form into this transparent glass. Think about the sands of the sea. Think about the earth itself. But again, the way the Abrahamic covenant describes it, we are those sands of the sea. We are the stars of heaven. The posterity of God upon the earth. Imagine every human being as a grain of sand with their own hopes and their own fears, their own experiences and their own perceptions. And if we're ever going to make this earth a sea of glass and fire, it will be the fire of God that is required to take every single grain and somehow through that brilliant glory fuse us and transfigure us until we become one, one great sea of glass through that fire. In order to do that, we're going to have to gather together. We're going to have to understand one another. What's amazing to me is, think about what we've been learning lately about presiding. And President Ballard has taught this repeatedly and powerfully. The job of the presiding officer is not 
to make up the make up his mind and make the decisions and then start delegating responsibilities to go go get my vision accomplished no that's that's the old model and it's it's not the right model that's how the world does things that's not how the lord does things so what's the model of presiding in the lord's way as the presiding officer whether it's that the bishop of the ward council or the state president over the high council or the parent over the family council what's the presiding officer meant to do not make the decision and delegate the the tasks no his task is to gather everyone's perspective this is the principle of scattered revelation right god had the puzzle but he broke it into pieces and scattered it across the entire council every member has some And if I'm presiding, my job is to coax out of every member, give them enough confidence that they feel free to share their wisdom and experience and perspective, their best thinking, their their spiritual gifts, since they all have one or more, and they have some that I don't have, and so we need each other, right? If that happens, then not only will we come up with the best collective decision, but everyone will have a stake in that decision. And it's not a matter of me delegating, telling them to do something to achieve my vision. They all want to come together to achieve the collective vision. It's genius. So think about, again, if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is meant to preside over this dispensation of the fullness of times. What's my job as presiding officer? It's not to have all the answers. Rather, it's to gather out the answers from every group that has any, and all groups have some. It's a matter of assembling those spiritual gifts. That's why I'm so grateful to have holy envy when I do interfaith work. It's why I'm so grateful to have empathy and understanding, and not not pity, but rather, what have you learned along your journey that I have not? What gifts are you bringing to the table Because our job in this church is to gather together all things in one in Christ. Every godly grain of sand. I need to hear your experience. I need to find out what it's like to live in your shoes. Reach across racial lines, reach across religious lines, political lines, class lines, gender lines, sexuality lines. It's You name the grain of sand. God doesn't want to lose a single one. And we have to become more welcoming, more embracing, if we ever hope to gather all things together in Christ. That is the one great whole. And it's our job to make sure the world gets there. Okay? You with me on this? Are we with the Lord on this? This is huge. It's going to take the rest of this dispensation to pull it off. But so much of it is a change of heart on our part so that we're open to those things. Instead of me just trying to force and fuse people into my perspective. Now they've learned some things along the way that we, we don't quite get. Okay, Bring it all together in Christ. Now, verse 11 and 12, understanding what a tall order that is and how on earth you're going to be able to accomplish that. Well, read the next two verses. In whom, we're still speaking of Jesus, Also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him. 
again, he's all in. He's all in on this. Fully invested. He's taking this seriously. This is the inheritance he's trying to share with us, and he's the birthright son. So he's foreordained us. He's promised this. And when it says it's according to the purpose of him, that's him is is the short version. Paul's going to give us the long version. It's one of my favorite titles for Jesus. It's just way too long uh, to, to, to remember easily. We think of Jesus as the rock or the good shepherd or the door or the way and the truth and the life. How about this? How's this for a title for the Savior? Him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Whew, that's a mouthful. <laughs> okay, But if that's who he really is, that if he wills it, if it's his counsel and his, his commitment, then he's going to work all things according to that. And once I know that about him, that if he put, takes it into his mind and in his heart, he's going to do it. He will accomplish it. Wow. Then the next line, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. <laughs> I have every reason to trust in Christ. What a glorious being in whom to place my trust because he deserves it. In pre-mortality, when we were wondering, is anybody going to be able to pull it off, the mission of the Messiah? When Jesus raised that holy hand and said, here am I, send me, we knew, we believed, we trusted. As impossible as his task, task sounded, we knew that if it was the counsel of his own will, then he was going to work all things to accomplish it. What I love about that long title is it describes the Lord as one who is infinitely worthy of our, of, of our trust. Because if, if he wills it, then he will work it. What the Lord wills, he works. What the Lord plans, he performs. He will Again, this is the same Lord who says, I am able to make thee holy. Trust me. Or in the Book of Mormon, I am able to do mine own work. Trust me. And we did first trust Jesus. That's what won the war in heaven. And what will win the war on earth is continuing to trust in him who is able to do all things according to the good pleasure of his will. That's his omnipotence, and we can fully trust in it. Think about what Jesus himself said back in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I get the same sense from Paul here. No fear, only trust. It's the Father's good will, and what the Son wills, he works bank on it. And then speaking of the bank, look at verse 13 and 14. Paul is still rejoicing in the gospel here, and notice what he rejoices in next. In whom, Jesus that is, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So in premortality, you accepted the plan, you heard the plan, and you trusted in it. Here on earth, after having passed through the veil, you've heard it again. You heard the word of truth. The gospel of salvation was preached to you. And you trusted all over again. I didn't teach you anything new on my two-year mission among you. I was just there to remind you of things you once believed in. 
So here we are again, in whom also after that ye believed, so you're believing all over again, and after you've done that, after you've placed your faith in him, notice the next part, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, this is the banking metaphor. And Paul has used it in a previous letter already. He called the Spirit the earnest of our inheritance. And here he's saying it again. I love the imagery. If you picture the down payment we are making on a house that I have no, I'm, I'm not rich enough in, in, in grace to be able to afford it, but I, I promise I'll pay you back. In fact, I'm so serious about wanting this house that I will put down some earnest money. It's money I'm giving you to show how in earnest I am about paying off the rest of my debt. Okay? If I default, you get to keep all that. If, if I show that I'm not serious about this, then I lose my earnest money. But I'm serious. And nobody's more serious than the Savior. He has given us, well, let's put it this way, in terms of the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fourth article of faith, which maps it all out. I exercise faith in Christ, in whom I first trusted right? I know he's worthy of that trust because if he wills it, he, he works it. As a result of that faith, I now have faith unto repentance. I want to change my life because it's, it's not quite as Christ-like as it needs to be. I want to be more like him, so I'm changing. In fact, I'm so committed to that change, I'll immerse myself in it. I will covenant to continue, and that's now baptism. But as a result, if I've shown my fully, if I've proven to God that I'm fully invested, how does the Lord prove to me that he is too? Well, by giving me the gift of the Holy Ghost. A constant companion, promising to be with us and work through us and on us so that we can eventually be sanctified through the Spirit, to be able to be as holy and without blame as we were foreordained to be. Okay? See how all these phrases from chapter 1 are coming together? Well, when God gave us the gift of the Holy Ghost, that was just the down payment. I love this imagery, this language, because it changes the way I view the Holy Ghost and the gift that God has given me. That as a little eight-year-old, when my father placed his hands upon my head, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it was the most glorious down payment I've ever received. And it was the Lord's way of saying, I'm in earnest. I'm fully invested in your salvation. I'm not going to give up until I bring you home. And here's the Spirit as proof. The earnest of your inheritance. You're inheriting, you're receiving the Holy Ghost right now. That's nothing compared to the full inheritance that comes when you're not only with the third member of the Godhead, but with the second and first as well. Celestial glory. This is just a preview, a down payment. And if that's the down payment that will eventually result in the redemption of the purchased possession, the Lord purchased us with his own life's blood. And he will not give up on us until every last debt has been paid, the uttermost farthing. In, in my mortgage, yes, I've put down a down payment as much as I could afford I was in earnest. I want to live here. But every month, I continue to prove to the bank that I'm still all in. 
I will not default upon on this loan. Well, what monthly payments is the Lord giving us? It's far more frequent than monthly in most cases. Every time I feel the Holy Ghost again, it is a reminder and a reassurance that the Lord hasn't given up on me. Despite my sins, when I lose the presence of the Spirit, as I repent of them and the Spirit comes rushing back, I haven't defaulted on the loan. Or to use the right metaphor, Jesus is not defaulting on the loan. He has not given up on me. I pray that each of us, whenever we feel the Spirit, we take it as the proof God intended it to be. That He's still chipping away on us. He's rich in mercy, but His wisdom and His prudence is such that he wants us to feel that redemption payment after payment after payment. Okay, no wonder we're not presuming upon the grace. It's, oh, it's just paid off. I can pay it all off a piece of cake. I can handle a 10,000 talent debt. Oh no, my wisdom and prudence is such that it will be line upon line, precept upon precept, sin upon sin, and forgiveness upon forgiveness. So that it changes you through the process. So it keeps us together in covenant relationship through the whole thing. Okay? I don't know what God's amortization schedule looks like, but it's eternal. And he'll never stop working on us until we've reached the redemption of that purchased possession. Well, verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So far, Paul's been rejoicing in the gospel. Now he's rejoicing in his fellow saints. And it's as if he knows God is fully invested. So th there's no reason to worry for you. I know that this ends, up, <laughs> this ends up with your own redemption. You are the purchased possession. And so I rejoice in you. I give thanks to God. I heard your faith. Remember to the Romans? Your faith is spoken of across the world. You're world-renowned you're, you're world for that. Well, if, the Ephesian saints as well, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love for all the saints. It's like you're keeping both of the two great commandments. Love of God, the vertical one. Love of neighbor, the horizontal, the horizontal one. You are exactly where you need to be. So no wonder every time I pray, I make mention of you. Thanking God for who you are and pleading with God that he'll continue perfecting you. Actually, if you were to compare the attributes he lists at the beginning with the attributes he lists at the end, the earlier ones seem to be heart-based. Your faith and your love. So grateful for that. Well, to that faith and that love, I'm now praying that God will give you wisdom and revelation and knowledge. And those seem to be more head gifts. And if you had to start with one of them, I'd start with heart too. Get your heart in the right place and have faith and love. But then start working on wisdom and knowledge and the revelation that will help you know how to bless and how to help and how to exercise faith in meaningful ways. The head is catching up to the heart here. 
And that's the hope that Paul has for us all. He then says in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's another thing he's praying for. And if your eyes can fully open, if the light of the Lord can enlighten your understanding, this is what you'll start to see. It's an amazing list. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. That's the first thing you'll see once your eyes are fully enlightened. You'll see why God called you in the first place. You'll see the hope he has in you. It was faith in you that prompted him to call you into his kingdom. That's the first thing you'll see. Next thing you'll see with these enlightened eyes, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We saw rich in grace. Now we're seeing rich in glory. That's the inheritance he's trying to give you. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Open your eyes. Let them be enlightened. That's what the Lord has foreordained you to receive. Next thing. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, or toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? This goes back to that if he wills it, he will work it. If he plans it, he will perform it. He has that power. He is omnipotent. And if you have the eyes to see, you'll have hope in the calling. You'll know the riches of the glory he set aside for you. And you'll see his power, his mighty power, the exceeding greatness of his power. Can I make it any more clear? I'm trying to enlighten your eyes here. He can do this. He can change you. And if you're still lacking proof, the next line, speaking of that mighty power, he says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. That's all the evidence you need. The proof of God's power was made manifest in raising his son from the dead. This is Paul being a witness of the resurrection as usual. And by bearing witness of the resurrection of Jesus, he's bearing witness of the power of the Father to raise life out of death. He did that physically with Jesus, but he's doing that spiritually with the rest of us. And though we have committed sins that are self-destructive. Spiritual suicide is what every sin entails. But I trust the power of God. And the same power by which he raised his only begotten son is the power whereby he'll raise every son and every daughter that's ever fallen into spiritual death. You understand, Paul? I love chapter 1. It's, again, this rejoicing in the plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power and love of God in sending his Son, for God so loved the world, right? He then says in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. That's the God we worship, far above all of those things. I don't care how, how towering the temple to Artemis is. Uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, who cares? How about the ultimate wonder of the eternal world? And that's the temple of God. That's God himself, far above anything here in Ephesus. He's far above every name that is named, whether it's Diana or Artemis or, or any of the silversmiths. He's above it all, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet 
and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Another beautiful title for Jesus. He fills everything with everything. He fills all in all. Anything you feel you might be lacking in life, he will pour out more than you have room to receive. Every weakness he will fill with strength. Every sin he will fill with forgiveness. Every wound he'll fill with his healing. And every sorrow he'll fill with unspeakable joy. Bank on it. Trust it. He promised he would. And we can hold out hope for that. He's risen above it all. And he descended below all things. He fills the entire gap, having hit the bottom and raised everyone to the top. He fills that gap with grace and, and it's glorious. <laughs> you ready to go on? I mean, chapter one, ha, ah, thank you for your testimony, Paul. If I got to go to fast and testimony meeting of the Ephesians first ward and Brother Paul was at the pulpit, oh, prepare yourself to be blown away by the things that he knows so well and testifies of so powerfully. Well, he mentioned this mystery, though. And part of that mystery is gathering together in one all things in Christ. But there's more to that mystery as far as the day-to-day -day operations of the church in a place like Ephesus. And so in chapter 2... He's going to shift gears slightly and go from rejoicing in the big picture to start seeing what, how does this look on, on the ground level. So chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. I was hinting about that when we were talking about resurrection at the end of chapter 1. And just like God raised his only begotten son from physical death, he's raising the rest of us from spiritual death. He's quickened us, which just means to be made alive. Okay? We used to be dead in, trans in trespasses, dead in sins. We're now alive. This is Romans 6 all over again, right? Buried in baptism. The old man has been laid under the watery grave, and now I can be raised again in newness of life. Same thing's happening here. And what did we need to be raised from? What's this spiritual death look like? Fascinating description here. Wherein time passed, ye walked according to the course of this world. That's our first mistake. And Ephesus would be an easy place to do it. I mean, it's got world wonders right there. And all this kind of oh, peer pressure that's all around you and everybody moving in this worldly direction. Ephesus would have been a good place for Satan to take Jesus when he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just worship me. Well, Jesus would have said no, but unfortunately, a lot of people said yes. And Paul is trying to quicken them, trying to bring them out. So forget the course of the world. Next phrase. According to the prince of the power of the air. And that's a fascinating title for the adversary. This is the only place in all of scripture that he's described this way. But talk about a perfect, perfect title. He's a prince who's always wanted to be king. Always trying to usurp the father's throne. But what's he the prince of? So he's not even the king that he wants to be. No, no, stay in your lane, Lucifer. He's just a prince, but what's he have power over? The air. That's it. He's nothing but hot air. He's bad breath. I mean, if you think about the, the breath of God that breathes life, quickens the dead, breathes into 
dust and creates a living soul? Or think about the wind that moved upon the, the waters of creation, bringing order out of chaos. Wind and breath and spirit are all the same word in Hebrew. God has good breath, okay? Life-giving breath. What's, it, what's the alternative? It's the, the halitosis of hell. <laughs> it's the bad breath of the prince of the power of the air. Or another way to say that, or to, another thing to see here, if it's in the air, it's blown about. Paul will use that idea a little bit later in this letter. There's no foundation, and he'll use that metaphor later in this letter. It's just floating around. Sound like the great and spacious building? With no foundation upon the earth? And it can be blown about wherever the winds of popular opinion might be leading? Remember, are you a reed shaken in the wind? Well, who's the one blowing that wind? It's Satan, the prince of the power of the air. More description. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You're supposed to be children of light. We'll see more of that. You've been predestined to be adopted in as children. But don't be children of disobedience. Don't choose the wrong side of the family. Don't follow Lucifer and become a child of his. He goes on, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh. And conversation isn't just talking, it's walking. Conversation is your lifestyle. It's, it's, how you, it's how you behave. All of that falls under the heading of conversation. And unfortunately, in times past, we who are spiritually dead, what was our conversation, our lifestyle like? Well, lust of the flesh. Whatever I felt like, oh, just be the authentic you and just go wherever your desires or appetites might lead. Oh, careful there. If you go there, what's the next line? You'll end up fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. A fascinating set of verses here to describe what we're up against. What the adversary is trying to make us become. The desires of the flesh and of the mind. Think about physical appetite. Ooh, there's a desire of the flesh. That's Satan's first temptation. To Jesus. And then what about the desires or lusts of the mind? Wrong thinking patterns. Pride going to our head. Oh, that was the second temptation Jesus faced from the adversary. He's unleashing them all on all of us, and we've got to overcome them. Otherwise, we'll end up by nature the natural man. And the natural man is an enemy to God, and always has been and always will be, until we yield the enticings of the Holy Spirit and become a saint through the atonement of Christ. Thank you, King Benjamin, for that. You see what Paul is warning us all about? We've got to come unto Christ, or that's what we'll end up becoming. Children of wrath, just like others have, have been. He then says in verse 4, in case we're overwhelmed by, oh great, that's, that's the enemy, that's what I, I've got to overcome, what are my odds? Well, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, remember we already saw rich in grace, rich in glory, now rich in mercy. And we're going to need it, because in times past, I was dead in trespasses and sins. In times past, I was blown about by Satan's bad breath. But God is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. 
You see what's motivating is mercy. It's his love. That's beautiful. It's not merciful because I, I probably should because they're slackers and I, I can't trust them with anything more. It's no, I love these people. And my, because of my great love, I want to be merciful to them to give them as many chances they, as they need to change. So it's for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. I love that he had to kind of stick that in really quick. One fast insertion just to remind us that's what saves us. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his great love. And because of all that, he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. What a beautiful passage. He just wants us to be raised together so we can sit together. You remember in the book of Revelation, it describes a really strange throne. First it says that Jesus sits with the Father on his throne. But then it says that if we overcome, we can sit with him on his throne as well. There's room for everybody. Come, come up, little children. Come sit on my lap. I'll hold you on. I'll hold on to you. There's enough room for us all. I'm trying to help you grow up in God. You've got to get used to the, to the seat, okay, the throne. And he wants to share it with us because of his mercy which is informed by his love, because of his grace, which is informed by his, his kindness. Elder Maxwell once said to Elder Bednar, uh, I think at the time Elder Bednar was president of BYU-Idaho, and Elder Maxwell had come to speak and was talking with Elder Bednar and said to him, there is no atonement absent the character of Christ. And that blew away Elder Bednar. Blew me away when Elder Bednar told us. The character of Christ, Christ-like attributes, are what underwrite the atonement. It's his mercy and his love and his kindness that makes him want to reach out and reach down to us to lift us to his high and holy level. That's the Lord we worship. <laughs> exceeding riches? Yeah, you better believe it. Now, verse 8, since I mentioned it is by grace that ye are saved, can I just hit that doctrine one more time to make sure it's, it's riveted in your attention? Verse 8 through 10, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And let me reiterate it just to make it crystal clear. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, hold on to that for a second before we go on to the next verse. Because it's here, usually, that evangelical Christians, our wonderful born-again Christian friends, will pause and say, well, what, you Latter-day Saints, please ponder that passage. Because I'm worried about you guys. You guys who seem to come across as, oh, earning your way to heaven. Working off your debt. Oh, he's rich in mercy. You don't have to pay him back. You're not paying him off. And you're certainly not paying off the debt directly. You can't do it, 10,000 talents. No, it's not of works, because if it were, you'd end up boasting. Instead of being humbled by Christ's gift, you would boast in the fact that you didn't need to accept one. I paid it off myself. No. Now, evangelical Christians are exactly right to warn us about that. 
Remember when we talked about the book of Romans and Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians should be able to walk down the same sidewalk hand in hand. But we tend to pick opposite sides of the sidewalk because we're alarmed by alternate dangers. And they're afraid of boasting and we're afraid of coasting. I've had plenty of evangelicals quote to me this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. It's not of works, so quit boasting. And I'm, I'm not trying to boast because that's not why I'm working. But while we're in Ephesians chapter 2, would you mind continuing to read? I'm not going to make you jump all the way to James to say that faith without works is dead. I'm not going to bring you to some other far-flung letter of Paul to allow Paul to balance out Paul and give you one of his wonderful God forbid statements that I'm not trying to get you to presume upon God's grace. God forbid that. But here, even without needing to forbid anything, just read the very next verse. So my wonderful evangelical Christian friends, don't stop there. Keep reading. The next verse says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, put 8 through 10 all together in one thought instead of dividing them up and having evangelicals only quote the first half and having Latter-day Saints only quote the second half. <laughs> Can we quote it all? Because he's given us the Goldilocks zone. He's putting up the, bu the bumpers on the bumper bowling like he does with his God forbid statements. Here's what he's saying. Your salvation is going to come through grace. There's no other way to get there. It's not going to be your work. You have nothing to boast about. But speaking of work, is there a place for it? Remember, there's a law of faith. And there's working within God's grace. But it's interesting that it's, that it's God working and God working in us. Because we're not what we need to be yet. So no wonder we can't just put it on Jesus' tab. No, he's, he's hard at work in that. This is the wisdom and the prudence speaking. To mete out the grace according to his riches, but also according to his wisdom. So we're his workmanship. He's working on us. And what is he working on us to do? Notice, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That we're supposed to walk in these works. Oh, we'll still be busy people. We'll still be active, anxiously engaged. We just won't be so anxious about that engagement. We'll be striving for perfection, but it's not toxic perfectionism that's motivating us. You understand? This is Danya-san waxing on and waxing off. We've talked about this before. This is our coach putting us through the drills, not to make the team, we're already on it, but so that we can enjoy the game we've been invited in to play. You understand? My works are not to circumvent grace. My works come as a result of God's grace. And I'm not paying him back, but in a way I'm paying it forward to help other people feel the grace of God reaching out to them as well. Are you with me on this? There's, those are the good works. I don't become any less active because of the grace of God. I just become a lot less anxious because of the grace of God. Okay? I'm working for a different reason. It's the reconciliation of my will. All that waxing on and waxing off. <laughs> Any 
any floor God wants me to sand and any fence he needs me to paint, I'm happy to do it because I know you are training me. It's beautiful. Well, he then says this in verse 11 and 12. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Earlier he talked about in time past you were dead because you were living in the flesh. Well, now let's make it a little more personal. You were Gentiles. And that's literal here. You were outsiders. But that's all behind us. That's time past. Oh, you who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And, and those were fighting words. That, that's strong language. Remember when David and Goliath were, were talking smack to each other? And what had David said about Goliath? Oh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Well, there's nothing to fear in him. He's not even part of the covenant people. So those of the circumcision were usually guilty of looking down upon those of the uncircumcision. That's why Jews and Gentiles never seemed to get along. But that was past. Things had to change. And they have. So Paul says that at that time, ye were without Christ. You didn't have him yet. You didn't know him yet. You hadn't accepted him yet. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, powerful description of being on the outside of things. An alien? Think about illegal aliens. And always looking over your shoulder, worried, I don't belong here. And if they find out, I'll be deported. Think about strangers in a strange land. Paul is going to dwell on this metaphor at length in his letter to the Ephesians. And again, such an all-powerful port city, people coming and going left and right. And Jews and Gentiles have lived there for a long time. And we're trying to make Christians out of all of you. You of the circumcision, quit calling the others of the uncircumcision. Circumcision's past, and it doesn't matter if you have or haven't, okay? It's Christians we're trying to become. So, aliens and strangers outside the covenant of promise, all those incredible blessings set aside for those on the inside. Well, what if I'm on the outside? None of that's for me. No wonder I have no hope as I live without God in the world. Think hard if you've ever felt left out. If you've ever felt cut off or passed over or picked last or not picked at all. Parents often worry about that for their children when they move to a new area. And we are strangers here. That's even harder if there's a, a language barrier. It's harder if there's some kind of racial line or religious divide. And I'm already sticking out like a sore thumb and nobody wants to bring me in. That's hard. In class, it's bad enough. I don't know anybody that's sitting around me, but at least I'm in class and don't, I'm not supposed to be talking with them. But during recess and during lunch, when people get, get to self-select and sit with their friends and it becomes painfully obvious, I don't have any. As I sit by myself, 
and wonder if I'll ever fit in. Paul is using a powerful metaphor here to describe the Gentiles who have come into the kingdom of God. And are you Jewish Christians going to treat the Gentile Christians as if neither one of you were Christians at all? You're going to still keep them on the outside of things? Because that's wrong. If we're going to if we ever hope to gather together in one all things in Christ, then the least we can start with is gathering each other in, in love. Since supposedly we're all brothers and sisters in the faith. The way he says it in verse 13, but now, so forget the, the time past where you were Gentiles and they called you uncircumcision. Forget the past. We're in the present. So now, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. It's that blood that washes away the separation. It's the blood that brings us together. It brings the far off nigh. Come unto me. Paul says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And that middle wall in some ways, that's too soft a translation. What the King James translators gave us is, oh, it's just kind of this like, oh, picture that little half wall between your cubicles at work. Oh, but you're constantly kind of peeking over and, hey, well, how's, how's, how's life treating you? And are we doing anything after work today? And what, what's your weekend plans? And, oh, yeah, it's just this middle wall. No, it's stronger than that. In fact, the New International Version translates that the dividing wall of hostility. Oh, that's stronger. Or how about the contemporary English version? The wall of hatred that separated us. That's what the blood of Christ is trying to wash away and break down. In the temple of Jerusalem, there were different levels of holiness, right? Well, there was a court of the Gentiles, where at least, I mean, Gentiles, even those, oh, those nasty uncircumcised, well, you can get semi-close. You can come on to Temple Square, close enough for you. But there was a middle wall of partition. There was some kind of banister or balustrade that marked where the uncircumcised could come and where they could not. None shall pass. You're not welcome here in the court of the Israelites. Well, do you remember what happened since we're at the Temple Mount? Do you remember what happened inside the temple when Christ spilled his final blood on the cross? When the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, this is God opening the door so that humanity can come in to his presence. Well, if that was happening inside the temple, what was happening outside? The veil separating humanity from divinity was torn. Well, the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, was being broken down as well. It's such a powerful image Paul is giving us. Tear the thing down. Tear down this wall. <laughs> you can hear Reagan saying it, right? The, the Berlin Wall is separating a city never meant to be separated. Two countries that really need to become one. West and East and an iron curtain. Tear the whole thing down. Become one here. Break down the middle wall of partition. He then says in the next verse, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, or of two, one new man. So making peace. That's how the Lord does it. How does he break down the middle wall? Through his blood. How does he abolish enmity? Well, through his flesh. Wait, flesh and blood? And through the shedding of his blood and the bruising of his flesh, two can become one. Outsiders can be made insiders. Divisions can be erased and everyone can come into communion. Are you thinking of the sacrament yet? The sacrament is, make, is meant to make us one. If you are not one, you are not mine, the Lord says. So how do we become his? We become one another's. We, we live the second great commandment so we can truly live the first. You, you get this? It, it's mind-blowing to me how well Paul is, trying to describe, is describing these things. And through what Christ did, Gethsemane and Calvary, the atonement, the at-one-ment. Well, there you go. Because of his at-one-ment, there's no middle wall separating us from God or separating us from each other. It's through the atonement that Christ makes it possible to live the first and second great commandments. And it's in the sacrament, as we renew those covenants with him, that it's meant to erase the dividing lines between one another. That's why it's called communion. I've mentioned this before. In other churches, when they pass the peace before they partake of communion, I'm trying to break down middle walls of partition that might separate me from anyone else in this congregation. Think about prayer in the holiest of places. And there can be nothing that divides us from one another. Or God cannot fully participate. There's things dividing you from each other. And that, in and of itself, is dividing you from me. So come into communion. Let's break down enmity, which is opposition. Here, when he says it's through the law of commandments contained in ordinances, I'm not trying to get rid of commandments in general or ordinances in general. Those are all important. But the specific legalistic commandments of the law of Moses, the specific ordinance of circumcision, those have been fulfilled in Christ. And they're no longer necessary. Become one. And if we'll do it, look at verse 16. If we'll let the Lord do it in us, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, that's you Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, that's you Jews, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Jews, you're in just as much desperate need of Jesus as the Gentiles are. There's no way for any of us to come home without him. And so through that blood, through that atonement, through that self-sacrifice, he's banished enmity. He's broken down walls. He's made two one. He's allowed us to preach peace. And one spirit and one father, we're all coming unto God. Has anyone ever done that for you? Has anyone ever, ever preached peace to you that were afar off by bringing you closer in? It's one of the kindest things we can do when somebody moves into the neighborhood. 
it's not just reach out and drop off cookies and hi, I'm, I'm your neighbor, but can I introduce you to a bunch of other neighbors too? Uh, we want you to be part of the group. And rather than just stay in our own little clique, it, we want everyone to come into the community. It's when you're at a, a party or your new day at school or you're sitting by yourself in the, in the cafeteria and somebody comes and sits with you or better yet comes and invites you to come and sit with them and all their friends. Oh, no more afar off. Come on in. I've seen some of that performed in my own ward in such beautiful ways by people that are working with refugees that have come to Utah and talk about being afar off and now they're nigh and all kinds of language, language barrier and cultural distinctions and religious differences and everything. And on the one hand, there's a lot of amazing work that's done of gathering shoes and clothing and so on and, and donating it. And that's beautiful. It's a beautiful start. But I've seen sisters in our ward, my sister-in-law herself has done a lot of this as well, where it's not just I'm here to drop off some clothing. It, I'm here to help you learn English. And I'm here to help you get your kids enrolled in school. And I'm here to help you fill out some job applications and, and try to help you get your feet underneath you here in a new land. That's amazing. That's good Samaritans for you. Okay? That's the celestial soul. And then Paul gives this amazing analogy. He's been working toward this, okay? But he finally says it in its, in, its, in its strongest form in verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, which means God's family. You're part of the family now. You've been adopted in. And in fact, we don't even have to treat you like some adopted pseudo-sibling. No, you are every bit as much a part of the family as we are. My wife's family, in fact, is like that in such a beautiful way. When my wife's biological mother passed away, she left seven children behind, 12 and under. Young family. Boy, did my father-in-law have his hands full. And later, when he met someone brave enough to become instant mother of seven, that's a miracle in and of itself. But when they had three more children between them, there's now ten kids in the family. Seven and three, half siblings, right? Well, I guess technically. But I've never sensed that in my, among my in-laws. In fact, they don't even feel like in-laws. They have fully brought me into the family. I'm as close to the, my brother's in-law as my own brother's. And I, it doesn't feel like law. It just feels like love. And it's amazing how it, it, it's no half-sibling between my wife and those three younger, youngest siblings. No, it's all just one. To think about becoming... Well, think about Isaiah 56, for example. Remember that last year? Strangers and eunuchs in Israel. And if you want to feel afar off, then be a stranger in Israel, where it's our land and it's the promised land and it's not for you. Or imagine a eunuch unable to have posterity in a, in a community that is defined by its focus on posterity. To be single in a family church is the equivalent, right? They'll never fit in. And, what's I, and yet, what does Isaiah 56 promise? You will. 
God has a place and a name for you that is better than sons and daughters. You will not be left out. I, I wonder if Paul's language here is part of the fulfillment of Isaiah 56's promise. Come, be nigh, be one with us. You're no longer a stranger because now I know your name and you have a place and a name among us. Eunuchs, oh, God's given you something better. Compensatory blessings and come and let me share all these blessings with you. I absolutely love this imagery. It actually made me think about this in a literal way of becoming a fellow citizen with the saints. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Paul was getting roughed up and he's carried off and he talks to the Roman soldiers? I said, well, are you going to really do this? You're going to treat a Roman citizen this way? And the soldier's like, you're a citizen? It's like, wow, I had to buy my citizenship. And Paul's like, oh, I was freeborn. It's like, ooh, yikes, you even outranked me as a citizen. But since you're a citizen, you have certain rights and privileges. Well, what Paul is saying here is everyone should. We're all fellow citizens with the saints. You don't have to show me your green card. Now you're... <laughs> it's interesting to think about the United States as a nation of immigrants. And they were willing to come in. And those that were afar off came nigh. And yes, there were all kinds of middle walls of partition. But somehow the great American melting pot fused us into one. E pluribus unum. At least it's meant to. We've got to get past those differences. And actually, rejoice in the differences that people can bring in and gather together in one, all things in Christ. Right? Same imagery that we're still building upon. That's the task of this dispensation. But to become fellow citizens, I looked up online to see what a naturalization ceremony entails. An interesting word, naturalization, that's the word we use for obtaining citizenship. But there's even a, a biological form of that, verb, or of, that, of that word. Because you naturalize plants and animals when you introduce them into an area where they're not indigenous. But you help them take root so they grow in this new environment as if it were natural to them. The animals begin to make themselves at home in this new area, and it starts to feel natural to them. That's what naturalization is. And so to think about a foreigner coming into the United States and eventually be receiving citizenship through a naturalization process. We don't want the natural man. We already saw that in a previous verse. But to become natural members of the body of Christ, it's not some foreign object that's been grafted in. In fact, grafting is a miracle. It becomes part of the tree. Right? You understand the metaphor? Well, how's this for naturalization? You are meant to take an oath of allegiance. And this, I looked up the one, and I'm sure there's similar oaths if you're naturalized in other countries as well. But let me read to you the naturalization oath of allegiance to the United States of America. Picture a foreigner coming in and accepting this promise or making this promise. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That's the first step. We are breaking old ties entirely. 
Why? So I can forge new ones in their place. But I, I'm renouncing the old, my old allegiances. Can you sense Paul hinting about that? That I'm, I'm turning my back on the prince of the power of the air. I want nothing to do with him. I, I, I'm not interested in the lusts of the flesh or the mind. I'm not going to be the natural man. I want to be naturalized into the kingdom of God. So I don't want anything to do with that old life. I've buried it. I've crucified it in Christ and then buried it in baptism. Step one. Then step two. That I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Oh, and if they're foreign, that might even include the foreign country I used to be a citizen of. Oh, good thing I broke down those old allegiances. I have a new one. And I'm all in. I'll support it. I'll defend it against anyone who attacks. You see, I'm not going to be merely neutral. Once you come into the kingdom of God, you've left neutral ground forever. And that's the part of the naturalization process. But it's even more than that. Part of the positivity, not just neutrality, but positivity, next part of the oath, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And if that's not perfect language for conversion, I don't know what it is. It's not just I, bear, I, I pledge allegiance to the flag, but I bear true faith to all that it represents. And then the end of it is really interesting. Part of what I'm promising to do is that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. I'll go to war for you. That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law. So if I'm not going to war, I'll still come and serve. And finally, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law. That's fascinating. A naturalized citizen is willing to go and do whatever that nation needs from them. Whether it's to fight the good fight, take on the enemy, whether it's to give whatever service I'm called to render. I love the last one, to perform work of national importance. And I'm amazed by converts coming into the kingdom of God, willing to defend the faith, willing to accept callings, willing to perform work of eternal importance. Oh, that's allegiance. That's fellow citizens with the saints. And then the oath ends. And that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me, God. And yes, God will help you with all of that. It's my own free will. And it's the pleasure of His good will to make all of this happen. Like I said, this is our, the United States is a nation of immigrants. And I picture my own ancestors who once were afar off, coming nigh, and passing into New York Harbor from the nations of Denmark or Italy and France and Sweden, Scotland, and the British Isles. Ancestors from all over Europe, in my case, who came in, and those that came a little later than others, got to pass beneath the torch of Lady Liberty. But Lady Liberty is only one nickname for that beautiful statue. Emma Lazarus wrote the poem 
the new Colossus to describe this colossal statue. And in it, one of the nicknames, one of the titles given to this statue, statue is not Lady Liberty, it's Mother of Exiles. And that's interesting. To think about this mother hen extending her wings to bring us in. This mother lifting her lamp to shine that light of liberty to exiles, to people who realize there's no going back. This is my only hope. But part of that poem, some of the most famous lines that are etched at the base of the Statue of Liberty, listen to them once again. And picture this mother of exiles reaching out across the earth with this invitation. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Can we make the church equally welcoming? Maybe we need the signs on the sides of our chapels to be a little bigger. So instead of just saying, visitors welcome, it invites the wretched refuse of the world to come and be cared for, to come and be gathered in, huddled masses yearning to breathe the breath of life, to be free from whatever fears and challenges they faced outside the kingdom of God. My friends, we have to break down middle walls. And we especially have to break down walls of hostility and enmity. We've got to love. We've got to invite. We've got to naturalize. Until the kingdom of God on the earth is the most glorious melting pot that's ever taken place. In fact, it melts into a sea of glass and fire where we know all things, including the lived experience of every child of God. Well, how do we get there? <laughs> tall orders left and right. When we saw that tall order in chapter 1, we were reminded about Jesus, that he can do everything. And now that we're given this tall order in chapter 2, what are we next reminded of? Look at verse 20. That we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now that's a metaphor that's famous to every Latter-day Saint. The foundation of prophets and apostles. Oh yeah, we perk up our ears with that. Remember what we saw in the book of Revelation, that even a generation later when John is writing them, they're still making sure that they're tied down to a true foundation and trying to discern between true apostles and false ones, true prophets and false counterfeits. This is a foundation upon which we've got to build. That's one of the ways we become one. We all focus on the same single, singular cornerstone, Jesus himself. And we base our lives around the foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid for us. This is how one big building starts to rise. And what kind of building is it? Again, 
no offense to the temple of Artemis, but you got nothing. We're trying to build the temple of God. And like Paul said to the Corinthians, we are that temple. And not just me individually as my body is a temple, but we collectively form the body of Christ and the building of Christ. Collectively, we become a temple of the Lord, and it's got to be holy. It's got to be one. We've got to be fitly framed together. Think about that. That everything's tied together. It's, it's one solid structure. So that no matter what happens in the earthquakes in diverse places, and the shaking of faith in the latter days, oh, this thing's going to hold, because it's holding together. I've got you. Let me steady the shaken. Let's hold on to each other, and together we can progress through the mist of darkness to the tree of life. We're all built together on this. There's something powerful about that kind of unity, especially in the construction world. Think about, for example, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the wise man versus the foolish man. Don't build on sand, build on rock. But think about this. Even if you built on rock, you've got to be connected to it somehow. In the Luke version of that, it said that they dug deep. Mm, so they're digging into the rock so that they can lay the foundation in it. Now picture a chief cornerstone. It's the big one. Everything's going to be kind of pushing up against that. So there's Jesus. First and foremost, he's the most important part of any foundation we lay. From him, pull out your compass and square, for example. Uh, those instruments of construction that are so important. So we can make sure that things are straight and things are square. Things are firm. And so from the chief cornerstone, we will send out in one direction and then at a 90 degree angle, the other. We're going to make sure it's nice and square together. Here are prophets and apostles. And all together, drilled into the rock of the Redeemer himself. Now there's a sure foundation. But what's going to go on top? We're trying to build a temple here. Uh, but to, we have to connect the superstructure to the foundation itself. Just like the foundation has to be connected to the rock, the building has to be connected to the foundation. It's interesting, sometimes in a construction site, when they're pouring the footings, the foundation, when the cement is still wet, sometimes they'll take these very large bolts and stick the top, they'll turn it upside down and stick the top of that bolt into the wet cement with the threads of the bolt sticking up above and then let the whole thing harden so that those bolts are truly anchored in to the foundation. That's why they call them anchor bolts. And with the threads pointing upward, now I can drill a hole in the frame. Okay, now it's the, the, the wood, the two by fours are coming together. And as I'm framing the house and trying to fitly frame it all together, I mean, those are studs and, and heavy 16-penny nails, and I'm tying everything together as tightly as I can. But it's got to be permanently connected to the foundation. Otherwise, can you imagine, worst case scenario, the wind or the earthquake or whatever it is, imagine the house holding together and the foundation holding together, but the house and the foundation coming apart. And it just kind of gets sheared off because of that force and the whole house just slips right off its moorings. You got a problem. So with those anchor bolts, bolt it down, take the frame and bolt it to the foundation. Nothing's moving here. How tied are you to prophets and apostles? How well do we know their words? 
How well do we follow their teachings? How grounded are we in the gospel of Jesus Christ that they preach? It's such a gift to have prophets and apostles. I know they don't claim to be infallible. That's None of us are either. But what they are called to be is as intensely intentional as any mere mortal can be at ascertaining the will of God. I'm amazed they accept that responsibility. To live a life as grounded in the cornerstone as you can get so that the rest of us can rest assured that we're built upon solid footings. Okay? Fitly framed together. That's, again, this idea of unity. And every part. To the Corinthians, it was body parts. And all the bodies got to tie together. To the Ephesians here, it's construction. And again, when you've got one of the wonders of the ancient world constructed in your own city, pretty good metaphor to use, Paul. Well done there. And it's with that that Paul then shifts to chapter, what we have now is chapter 3, where he brings oh, the Gentiles even closer in. That's his job, after all. He has been called as the apostle to the Gentiles. We've seen that clearly already. And so what can I say to my Gentile brothers and sisters to help them really feel like fellow citizens and part of the household of God? We'll turn to chapter 3 and see how Paul begins this part of the letter. Verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And that doesn't sound like a very... Oh, pleasant title. And yet for Paul, oh, he owns it. I'm fine with that. I'm a prisoner of Jesus because guess what? I am captivated by Christianity. Absolutely entranced by it. It's incredible. Remember back in the book of Acts when he stayed in the prison, even when the walls came a-tumbling down and shouted out to the, to the jailer, don't hurt yourself, we're still here because I'm a willing prisoner. I am happy to do anything God asks of me. So here I am, the prisoner of Jesus. I'm, I'm called to you Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, or toward you, we would say. Have you heard it? You Gentiles, didn't I tell you? God has dispensed grace all over me. Way more than even I can handle. And so I'm trying to spread it to everyone else. That's what a dispensation is for. The best I, the, the, I, I had my insight into what a dispensation is once in the bathroom as I was washing my hands. Because where did I go to find the soap? Oh, to a soap dispenser. And all of a sudden it clicked. Oh, a dispenser dispenses a dispensation of soap. Great. So what is a dispensation of the gospel? Picture the Lord looking down and going, oh man, everybody's got dirty hands and dirty hearts and all kinds of cleanup is necessary. So let's take someone who is ready and willing to accept the task. Someone willing to sign up as my prisoner, captive to my message and my cause. And let me dispense a dispensation of the gospel upon them. In this case, upon Paul, may I dispense a dispensation of grace. You knew you needed it. You were afar off from the Christian covenant, but I brought you in. 
In fact, I dispensed so much grace on you that for the rest of your life, you've been going around inviting other people in, other outsiders, particularly among the Gentiles. Now, that, now that you have that dispensation, now you've heard of it from me, Paul goes on in the next verse, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You remember back in chapter 1 when he mentioned the mystery? And part of that mystery was gathering together all things in one in Christ. Here he gets back to this idea of the mystery. And it's a mystery that Paul gets now. He understands. And what God had revealed to Paul was the mystery of how do you turn a Gentile into a Jew without having to pass through Judaism in the process? Oh, well, you all become Christians. That's how it works. The mystery is, how do, I, how do I change people's hearts? Well, I help them tap into the power of God. He changes them. How do I make strangers and foreigners into fellow citizens? That's the mystery. How do I graft some wild branch into a tame tree? I mean, that's amazing. Have you ever seen like a YouTube video on, on how branches are grafted? That's all of Jacob 5 for you, right? And it is such a wild process. It's like, does that actually work? The fact it does, what a mystery. But a mystery we've solved. Well, I think the greater mystery that hmm, still needs some solving is how do we break down middle walls of, of partition? How do we overcome racism or sexism or prejudice? How do we become one in Christ? That's the mystery that Paul's been taught, and he's trying to teach it to the rest of us. So he says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. They just didn't get it. And that's okay for their time period. It was us against them, and God is trying to gather a chosen people, trying to give them a sense of identity. But that was only temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. It was exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity, right? In thee and in thy seed, that's the exclusive part. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? That's the inclusive part. But how do we get there? Nobody knew. I mean, they tried as best as they could, but that was our Jewish past. How about our Christian present? Keep reading. In other ages, it wasn't made known, but it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. No wonder we need to build upon that foundation. They get it. Peter had his vision before he met Cornelius. I've had my vision on the road to Damascus. I, I tried in synagogues. I went out and preached among Gentiles. And we had a Jerusalem conference with James's help. It's being made known to current apostles and prophets because it wasn't revealed to the past ones. If that doesn't tell you why we, there's an ongoing need for apostles and prophets, I don't know what, what does. It's, it's new news. It's a new, albeit everlasting, covenant. And so thank heaven for these modern apostles and prophets that are making these things known by the Spirit. And what are they made known? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Wow, oh, it wasn't just fellow citizens. It's fellow heirs. It's not just one building, it's one body. It's partaking together of the promises of Christ. 
wait a minute, I thought those promises were set aside for those that were foreordained to receive it. Isn't that the house of Israel? Well, yeah. Along with anybody who's adopted in. And quit looking at them as, as half-brothers or sisters. They're full. Okay? There's such a beautiful promise here. It's as if they were natural-born with any other of the children. They're part of the family of the faith. So Paul then says in verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. How's that for a calling? I was made a minister. I mean, prisoner of Christ, yeah, you might misunderstand that. But as a minister, that's what I'm captivated by. The chance to share the good news with everyone else. That's the gift God gave to me. That's the grace God gave to me to be able to perform this ministry. And it's his power that is working in me. And boy, it's working effectively or effectually, as he said here. Okay? And he did it unto me, Paul continues, who am less than the least of all saints. Can you believe that? Me, little old Saul, becomes mighty Paul as God commissions me and calls me and empowers me to share the good news of oneness in Christ. So yeah, least of all the saints, that's me. But this grace has been given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's how rich he is in mercy, how rich he is in grace, how rich he is in glory. It's unsearchable. No wonder he can absorb a 10,000 talent debt. No wonder he never tires of forgiving us. And now that I understand that, Paul says, I was also called to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. The fellowship of the mystery. We will see fellowship of suffering. We'll see fellowship of grace. But the fellowship of the mystery, I, 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 want, I want to be led in on that. I want to be part of the fellowship. I'm not talking some kind of, oh, esoteric knowledge, and here we are, the Gnostics coming together, thinking we're better than other people because we know stuff. No, there's something more selfless about this particular fellowship. We've come together with an understanding of the mystery Christ really does change people. I've seen it. Haven't you? Oh yeah, we have. We're part of that fellowship. I was once an outsider. I'm an insider now. I was once a far off. He's brought me nigh. I was a foreigner, but I'm a fellow citizen and I know what it's like because I've experienced it. I want everyone else to experience it too. Sign me up for captivity in Christ. Make me a minister. And let me share the good news. And solve the mystery people keep wondering about. How on earth do you Latter-day Saints, how have you become one? It's the most fascinating thing. Even historians of religion scratch their head thinking, Latter-day Saints are the, are the first time we've seen anything since Judaism itself that has created not just a faith, but a people, like a culture. It's... Latter-day Saints are more than just a religion. They really are a, a culture. They're a people. And that's a mystery. Well, we're part of that fellowship of the mystery. The Lord has taught us how to become one. Now, granted, there's still a lot of work for us to do. We know the mystery, but we haven't, 
always put down all the, all the right steps. Okay? There's still a lot of gathering together in one in Christ that we need to accomplish. But we've been taught how it's done. So verse 10, all this mystery has been revealed to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. I love what he says at the end there. I'm bold. I've, I'm confident. I, I'll admit. But when you have faith in the Lord, what's there to fear? When you've been promised things and foreordained to receive them and called into his ministry, <laughs> fear disappears. So boldness, yes. Confidence, you better believe it. But it's not just me on this side of the veil. It's those on the other. The way he starts this passage in verse 10 is so interesting. Hard to understand a little bit. But when he talks about the principalities and powers in heavenly places, picture the angels themselves. Picture, oh, the heavens watching what we're doing here on earth. Oh, will they be able to pull it off? Will they live up to the calling they've been given? Here we have all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places just waiting to bestow upon them. But are they living up to the, the calling they've been given? Well, here when it says that to those principalities and to those powers, it's going to be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And that's really fascinating. That, wait a minute. We here on earth, the church, is somehow going to convince the, the heavenly powers about the wisdom of God? How do we do that? Well, prove God right. Prove that God is wise enough to reveal the mystery to us. And as we become one with one another, as all things are gathered together in one in Christ, can you picture the, the heavens themselves looking down in awe and wonder at what a bunch of mere mortals are pulling off? Like, look at them. The kids are figuring it out. They're becoming one. They're breaking down middle walls of partition. They're bringing in foreigners and making them fellow citizens. Father, it's not that I ever doubted you, I, but I might have doubted them. But look at them. They're proving just how wise you were in commending that ministry and mystery to them. I'd love to have an angel jaw drop because of how united we've become, not only as a church, but as a human race. Then, verse 13, Paul says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So yeah, don't get discouraged just because I'm going through hard things. I signed up for it. I'm the prisoner of Christ. I'm suffering for you, and don't worry about that. In fact, you should feel honored by the, the, the fact that I, would, that I would suffer tribulations on your behalf. That is your glory, is what Paul just said. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so I'm down on my knees in prayer. And what am I saying? Oh, praising him of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And I'm asking him that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, there's that wealth again, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That's what I'm praying for. I'm not going to give up on you. So please don't give up on me. I'm not going to faint 
because of my tribulations. So please don't faint over my tribulations either. We got to stay standing and I'll support you if you'll support me. Actually, it's the Spirit that's going to support us all. He will continue to strengthen us by God's almighty power. He knows that we've got a tough task ahead. Then verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I love that, that verse. To be rooted and grounded How's that for a foundation and a chief cornerstone that is the rock of redemption himself? To be rooted, how's that for a tree of life, sinking the roots down deep so it cannot be blown away at all? To be rooted and grounded in what? In love. That's beautiful. That's the foundation I'm trying to drill down into. That's what I, the bolts I'm trying to be anchored to, the love of God. And as Paul says it, you can't get that love. You can't comprehend it. It's breadth, it's length, it's depth, it's height, it's beyond you. It's immeasurable. Remember that beautiful passage in Romans? That neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, here Paul's saying similar things. Breadth and length and height and depth. Oh. Christ's love. Or the love of God made manifest through the gift of His only begotten Son. You'll never be able to measure it. Don't worry about that. Just root yourself in it. Ground yourself in it. And you will come to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. <laughs> You'll never fully understand it. That's part of the mystery, too. Okay, And then he closes this first half. In verse 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That amen tips us off. That, that he really is closing one thought and about to open another. This is the perfect place to stop and take a breath for a moment. The amen there. But what's he amening? What's he bearing his testimony of? That Christ is able. We saw a long title earlier in chapter 1. That if he takes it into his will to perform, he's going to work it out. He's going to do it. That's who he is. But here's another one. Another really long title that I absolutely love. Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or even think. What do you need? If the mystery is beginning to make sense to you, but there are still middle walls of partition that need to be broken down, if you're feeling like an outsider or you know people who feel that way themselves, how do we bring them in? How do I become one with one another? Despite all of our differences, the world has no clue but the kingdom of God, we've we got to figure this out. And the Lord is revealing it, it to us through prophets and apostles. President Nelson is reaching across middle walls. He's establishing relationships with the NAACP 
end, and that's making a difference. When Elder, when President Irene went to the Vatican and got to meet the Pope, we're, we're, we're reaching across aisles to see all the good that's being done, not only on the general level, but in wards and stakes and branches and districts across the church, to become one with people all around them. Beautiful interfaith work, humanitarian aid, coming together, brothers and sisters in arms. The Lord's able to do it. He's, if, but if we ever doubt it, then come back to the end of Ephesians 3. And who has called us to the work? The one who wills that we get it done. And then the one that enables us and empowers us to accomplish it. If you are hesitant to ask for the help you need, ask for it. If you can't even think of all the things that you're going to need to be able to accomplish it, don't worry about it. He's exceedingly, abundantly able to do even more than anything you could ask for or imagine. That's the Lord we worship. No wonder we're not trying to gather everything into us. We're trying to gather everything into him. And I testify that Christ makes room enough. His arms are stretched out still to gather us all in to his eternal embrace. So far what we've seen in Ephesians is pretty awe-inspiring. And there's still a second half that lies ahead. But if we can pause here with the, the promise in our ears that Jesus is able, no matter what the task ahead, no matter, no matter what he's asked us to do, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we might ask him to accomplish. Ephesians chapter 3 then turns to Ephesians chapter 4. First half gives way to second half. And Paul builds upon this magnificent lesson he's already taught us about becoming one in him, about gathering together in Christ, about building upon a foundation of prophets and apostles. There's going to be a lot of repetition in this second half, but it's, there's more of a pragmatism here. There's more of a, how am I going to make this work? If, if this is what the gospel entails and promises, and all the glory of chapter 1, and the foundation of chapter 2, and the bringing in of the, the Gentiles, and, and this work of reconciliation in chapter 3, then how do I do this? I'm, I'm enthused and fully engaged. I just, I don't know what to do from here. So do you have some practical plans that I can follow? It's actually interesting when you see the very first line of Ephesians 4. When part 1 turns to part 2, notice how Paul connects them. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, and therefore should tell us, ooh, this is connective tissue. We don't start conversations with words like therefore. Can you imagine just going up to somebody you haven't spoken to in a long time and just go, therefore, and they're like, oh, what, did I miss something? Because therefore is like, well, consequently, or as a result, because of everything I've just said, therefore, we ought to, and then keep on going. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. So, Make sure you have the first half in mind as we pivot to the second half. Because therefore, because of the mystery God has revealed and the desire to bring us all together in one, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation 
wherewith ye are called. Get it? Therefore, that's a tall order that God has made. An incredible ministry that he's commended to us. So you, my fellow prisoners, if you're captivated by the cause of Christ as well, then please walk worthy of it. We've been given a vocation, a purpose, marching orders. The coach has called in the play. We've got to execute it. We have to be worthy for all of this to work. So, what do I need to be working on? Keep reading. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I love the way Paul is beginning the second half. The, our marching orders have been laid out in the first half of Ephesians. One, two, three, we got to get up and go. But if we're going to go and do, we first have to stay and become. We have to become far more Christ-like than we've ever been. If we ever hope to gather all things together in one, in Christ. We've got to be in Him first. And what kinds of attributes will that require of us? Notice the list. Lowliness and meekness, it's got to be driven by humility from the very... That's foundational. Because if it's pride, then we're doing it for our sake, and we're still separating ourselves from them. There's still a middle wall of partition. Pride will divide. That's enmity. President Benson said that enmity is pride. So if we're going to bring in fellow citizens and no longer look down on them as foreigners, then pride has to be abolished, just like the enmity that the cross of Christ abolished. That's the first. Next, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and doing it in love, not just kind of plugging your nose like, oh, I've got, I can't believe I've got to put up with these people. No, it's long-suffering. Remember charity in 1 Corinthians 13? That charity suffereth long, and it beareth all things. It just puts up with each other. We've got to be willing to do that. And do it truly through the charity, the pure love of Christ. From there, trying to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's amazing how this all comes together in Paul's mind. Start with humility. Work towards charity and love. But just turn the other cheek and... There's going to be some growing pains as we grow together in one. There's a lot of noise on a construction site as we're trying to fitly frame the building together. It's hard for two to become one. It's hard to overcome those barriers. But if we are humble enough to not think that my way is the only way that it can be done, maybe they really are coming with ideas that I haven't thought of and gifts that I don't possess. Humility. Put up with each other and be loving about it all. And then aim for unity and peace in every interaction. Okay? It's such an amazing list of attributes. It reminds me, actually, when I was a missionary, an MTC teacher, I should say. I've been home for my mission for a while. I was a teacher, later a supervisor, and I started being able to work with some of the, the administration of the MTC. And those were the, the older adults. Okay. I'm amazed that the MTC basically runs on the back of people in their 20s. But there are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond who help run the show administratively. And there was one 
We knew his name and we knew his title and we were called him by those, that name and title to his face. But guess what we called him behind his back? We called him the walking attribute because that's what he was. Every one of us that knew him and worked with him, it's like, that's like the most Christ-like guy I think I've ever met. And none of it went to his head. He just, I mean, if we called him the walking attribute to his face, he wouldn't know who we were referring to. He was that humble, that full of love, put up with all of us, <laughs> recently returned missionaries, wanted unity, wanted peace. It was like he mastered Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3. And in one, and one day, I remember in a, in a training meeting, he told us something I hope I never forget. That for most people around the world, missionaries will be the closest thing to Jesus they will ever meet in this life. And that blew me away. That, but I thought, it, yeah, he was right. Most people will never meet the prophet in person. They won't meet apostles Hopefully they're building upon the foundation, but they're, they're, they don't know them personally. But when they meet the missionaries, people who are just as full-time consecrated to the work of the Lord as those general authorities are, it's the, it's the next best thing. An 18-year-old? A 19-year-old? What? Yeah. And I just remember leaving that meeting and going back to my missionaries and looking at them a little differently and really praying that they would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they were called. That the walking attribute himself would say that the missionaries have to be walking attributes themselves. Yeah, work on these things. Paul then says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. See, if we can all work on humility, all work on love, all aim for peace, that is the hope of our calling. And it's all the same hope. It's the same body we're trying to, to fuse into. It's the same spirit we're trying to follow. Next verse is even more famous. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then verse 6, adding yet a few more ones. <laughs> One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. How's that for unity? The way he said it in verse 3 about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, let's think of every possible avenue to unity that we can. And he comes up with seven. There are seven ones in verse 4, 5, and 6. We're going to become one body. And that's what he taught to the Corinthians. We're going to follow one spirit. And all those attributes, if we all eat the same fruit of the spirit, then you are what you eat and will become that same thing. We'll all work with the same one hope in mind as we serve one Lord, come together in one faith, all share the same one baptism as we look with an eye single to the glory of the one and only God. Father of every last one of us. Why would there be divisions? I don't know of a better definition of Zion. One heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness, so no wickedness to divide us. No poor among us, so there's no walls of division there either. All these ones. Have you ever been to a 
ward that felt like that or been a part of a ward that was like that? Have you ever, well, actually one of the things I love about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is no matter where I go in the world, I feel like I'm a part of them. And I show up and it's the same hymns, even if I don't know the language. We're on the same page in the scriptures. Uh, the lesson I would have missed back home. And we're a well-oiled machine. <laughs> there is a oneness there. But I've even felt it here. As I sit all by myself in this little office, staring into a camera, but imagining saints all around the world that I love. Some of you I've been able to meet. Others, I just try to read your comments and try to picture you out there. But I've had comments from people in Colombia and Mexico and Philippines thinking, wow, I, 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 hope, I hope they understand my English. And you do. I've had comments from Australia and I've done Zoom calls with people in Australia and Singapore and Zoom firesides in Scotland and England and I'm amazed by you. And I feel a oneness with you because we are of one faith and one baptism. We're following one Lord. We're all children of the same God. It's amazing. There was a family I knew in Tennessee. Father was a seminary teacher. We were close. Just an amazing, amazing family. And when he sent his kids to BYU, I got to have uh, one in, a, in my class for a full semester and one just for a few days before his schedule changed and he had to switch. I'm hoping to get him back someday. But this same young man had served a mission in Norway and they got to go back to Norway to go see his old mission stomping grounds. And the father, this friend of mine, sent me a picture of his big strapping missionary, return missionary son, alongside two saintly sisters there above the Arctic Circle. And then he sent me the picture because he said, oh, these two wonderful sisters just love studying the scripture to, scriptures together with you. And if you're there listening, oh, I wish I knew how to say I love you in Norwegian, but I do. And to all of you, there's something powerful about unity, about being one. And we have to feel that way with everybody. Whatever the differences, whatever the earlier differences might have been. Paul then says in verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace. That's another thing that brings us together. It's not me or you and I'm stronger or you're weaker or vice versa. No, we all were in the same need of the same grace of God. So every one of us received it according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And that's beautiful too, to trust God's measuring cup. To trust that he who's giving the grace also knows just how much we need. I mean, yes, he's rich in it, uh, overabundance, but he also has the wisdom and prudence to know how much to give to each one of us. We don't have to compare ourselves to other people as far as spiritual gifts are concerned. Or, oh, that person probably needs way more grace than I do. Oh, careful. It's not of works lest any man should boast. God meets and measures according to his perfect knowledge and wisdom, but he gives us all just what we need. And if I don't have something I need, I know my neighbor does. And since we're all in this together, well, <laughs> we're all one. He then says, wherefore he saith, and now Paul's going to quote the 68th Psalm, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 
Oh, beautiful verse from the Psalms. He's ascended so he could captivate captivity. He's conquered sin and death and broken every prison wall. Not only did he ascend to do that, but he ascended to, oh, to gather the gifts that he would come back down to earth to distribute. He takes heavenly gifts and brings them down to us. Paul then says, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? In other words, if he ascended, well, he must have descended first. That's the condescension of Christ. And then flip it. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Remember, he can fill all things in all. It's like he's coming up and down and back and forth to bring heaven to earth and then to bring earth back to heaven. Remember the ladder that Jacob saw in vision. And angels were ascending and descending upon it. Well, we have someone who outranks the angels. But Jesus condescended to come down to our level. He, in fact, went far further. But then he lifts us back up so we can be in heavenly places with him. Now, during those trips, as he's coming down and coming back up and, and refilling the bag to be able to descend and give even more gifts, what do some of those gifts include? Notice verse 11. The incredibly famous verse here, especially for Latter-day Saints. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And if you pause there, we're going to take the next three verses one by one really slow. But pause there. I used to read that like, oh yeah, he gave a couple apostles and then he threw in some prophets and he gave some evangelists and so on. And yeah, sort of. But a better way to read that is with the commas in place. He gave some, as in he gave some people, some time periods, apostles. To other people, he gave prophets. To this group over here, I'm going to send an evangelist. And to you or on this side, it looks like you could use a pastor or a teacher. Remember, he measures out his gifts according to our needs. And no wonder there is such truth and goodness across the earth. Even in places that we wouldn't consider Christian, for example. Oh, but the incredible truths that... It's like, to you I will give the Buddha, and to you I will give Muhammad, and to you I will give Martin Luther, and to you I'll give Confucius, and you get a sense? To you I'll give Aristotle and Socrates. To you I'll give Joseph Smith, and to you I'll give John Wesley. Now, to us who have been given Joseph Smith all the way to Russell M. Nelson... We're supposed to gather the truth that God gave to everyone else and through everyone else. We've got to gather it all together in one in Christ. But think about the grace of God distributing gifts according to people's needs with so many different kinds of callings spread across the earth. Now, thankfully, there is a foundation of prophets and apostles that is tied in directly to the chief cornerstone. That's as close to it as you can get. That's what we're supposed to be building upon. And that's what we're working on. But we need to honor the way God has distributed his gifts across time and space. There's actually an interesting translation, the New Living Translation of that same passage. Calls it says it this way. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. And then it starts listing apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. I love that. Those are gifts. And I hope you sense that in general conference. What a gift God has given us. 
and calling the prophets in our day. Or sending a pastor your way in the form of your bishop. Or teachers. I am so grateful for the gift of teachers that God placed in my life. They have taught me so much. And my biggest hope is just to pay it forward in hopes that anything I that something I teach just maybe might be a gift to someone else. Now, what are these gifts meant to accomplish? Now, this is the next verse, verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, pause there. And think about all these missions. Think about our commission to perfect the saints, to help everyone grow up in God, become more fully developed and mature. Perfect the saints. There's our every calling that we serve in, our ministering assignments, our lifting where we stand, our reaching out to neighbors all around us. There's perfecting the saints within the church. But how about beyond it? How about the work of the ministry? Are you revealing the mystery to other people? Are you sharing the good news and then the third, to edify the body of Christ, to build it on that foundation. Now think about if that's the role of all these gifts God has given us. Have prophets and apostles helped perfect you? I don't know of very many ways to perfect this better than prophets, past or present, teaching us the Word of God. Have apostles and prophets helped us in our ministry? Have they helped edify the, the body of Christ? Of course. And it's not, again, not just prophets and apostles. Have teachers helped you do that? My MTC teachers were amazing. And I was so grateful to become an MTC teacher myself. The people who taught me seminary, my religion professors at BYU. It's such an honor now to be in those same rooms on the other side of the classroom, trying to help inspire the rising generation the way my old teachers inspired me. Evangelists? That's, Joseph Smith defined evangelists in our day as patriarchs. And I don't know, in my own case, of a more personally prophetic document that has helped me grow up and mature and help other people grow up in God. I don't know of anything more personally inspiring to help me with my own ministry or to edify the people that I come in contact with than my own patriarchal blessing. It's one of the greatest personal gifts I've ever received from the gift of an evangelist, the gift of a patriarch. Go read yours again and see what God is inspiring you to do along these lines of perfecting and working and ministering and edifying. And then the next verse, verse 13. And this one blows me away because of an experience I had with an evangelical Christian. Uh, great friends, born-again Christians. I was surrounded by them in divinity school and my years in the Bible Belt. And I still do interfaith dialogue with them. And in one of those conversations I had, I was blown away because the argument, the, 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 argument was the word I was going to use. But we weren't arguing. It wasn't a Bible bash. But... I was making the argument that we need prophets and apostles in our day, and my friend was making the argument that, no, you don't. And again, I've, we talked about this before, that it sounds a lot like Judaism to Christianity. They're like, well, well, you're adding a New Testament? You're adding apostles? No, we have our testament. We have our prophets. And here they are saying, no, you can't add additional scripture, and you can't have modern prophets and apostles. And I'm thinking, saying, then you're missing out on incredible things. 
You need prophets and apostles. And then this good friend of mine said, no, no, no. In fact, the scriptures say we won't need prophets and apostles permanently. And I'm like, really? What verse are you thinking of? And he said, come with me to, come with me to Ephesians. And I'm like, huh? That's where I was going to take you. Uh, okay, I'm really curious where this conversation is going to go. And he said, yeah, go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm like, huh? I, would, I, would exp- I thought you might have some, oh, some hidden chapter of Ephesians that I was unaware of. But you're going to take me to Ephesians chapter 4? He said, yeah, let's look at verse 11, 12, and 13. I'm like, this is the weirdest thing ever. That's where I was going to take you. I mean, these are like my go-to verses on why we need apostles and prophets so much. And he's going to quote the same verses to say we don't need them? I'm on the edge of my seat. And this good brother reads 11 and 12 like we just did. And then he said, now 13 is the clincher. I'm like, I know. Okay, go, go for it. I'm, I'm really fascinated. He said, till. Do you see that? You see how verse 13 begins? Till or until. There it is. We only need prophets and apostles until we no longer do. So there you have it. The day will come where we do not need apostles and prophets. We have the ones in the Bible, and that's all we need. So there you have it. And I'm like, wow, you read a lot into one word. Now, I'll actually agree with you to a point. Because I, I'll admit as well, the day will come we no longer need prophets and apostles in the way that we always have. Uh, there have even been prophets and apostles in our day that have admitted that and said that the church is like scaffolding and someday it will come down to leave the eternal family as the thing we were supposed to be edifying all along. So yeah, I guess you're right. We'll only need them until. But until what? Can we finish verse 13 together? Till we all come in the unity of the faith, which is what Paul's been talking about for several chapters by now, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. And again, that perfect means mature and fully developed. You've grown up until, until there. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is a beautiful phrase. And when we finished reading the verse, I said to my friend, I'll agree that the day will come when we no, no longer need them. But you think we're there now? You think that the expiration date has been reached? And all the work that prior prophets and ancient apostles did to edify the body of Christ and to work in the ministry and to perfect the saints, it served its purpose and we've now arrived at the unity of the faith? Seriously? If we're at the unity of faith, why are we having this conversation? It doesn't feel that unified. We don't agree with each other on this. So we're not yet at the unity of the faith. How about the knowledge of the Son of God? I know a lot about him, but nothing compared to how well I want to know him. And prophets and apostles have introduced me to him in incredible ways. How about the perfect man? I've still got a lot of growing up to do. And the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ... I'm closer than I used to be, but I'm nowhere near the goal. Which means I'd say that prophets and apostles have pretty good job security. (laughs) We're not at the till yet. we got a long way to go. And not just the past prophets and apostles will get us there. 
because we're dealing with issues that they didn't raise. Like Paul already said, some mysteries weren't solved anciently, but are being revealed currently. So thank heaven. We thank thee, O God, for the prophets and the apostles that thou hast gifted us to help us become more than we otherwise would be. I love Ephesians 4 for this. You take Ephesians 2 with the foundation of prophets and apostles. And then chapter 4 of Ephesians, let's really build on them because they're trying to build us up in Christ. And they've got a lot of work ahead. So let's be patient with them as they're patient with us. Now verse 14 and 15, another powerful passage. What are the apostles up against? Uh, why do we need them so much? We've already seen Paul describe some of our opposition and, and the wickedness that we've got to overcome and the prince of the power of the air, right? That was in the first half. Second half, he's bringing it back. There's a lot of repetition here. And so this next passage, verse 14 and 15, that we henceforth be no more children. It's another reason why we need prophets and apostles still in our day, to help us grow up in God, to become that fully developed, mature human being. No more children. This is children in the wrong way. Okay? Children that are too easily swayed. Children that are spiritually immature. That's not the kinds of children we're supposed to be. So turn to the prophets and apostles so we aren't those children anymore. Next phrase. Tossed to and fro. We don't want that either. Think about a ship in the stormy sea. Think about a building with no foundation. Ah, you understand why we need to build, dig deep and build upon that foundation of prophets and apostles? So we're not tossed to and fro during the earthquakes in the latter days. Next phrase, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And who's blowing that wind? Ah, the prince of the powers of the air that we already met. Satan loves blowing us about, tossing us to and fro, looking down his nose on us as if we were naive, gullible children. How's he going to trick us? Notice the next phrases. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You remember in Joseph Smith Matthew, one of the defining signs of the last days would be the deception of the very elect according to the covenant? That's what he's after. He lies in wait to deceive. He's just hiding around the next corner, ready to jump out and fool us into following him. He's going to use the slight of men. We use that word in terms of sleight of hand. And think about those, oh, <laughs> mortal magicians that are doing something and trying to get our attention with this hand so they can do something else with the other. That's just slight of hand. That's cunning craftiness. That's just deception. They're, this is card tricks and optical illusions and smoke and mirrors and counterfeits and falsehoods and lies. Are we falling for them? I need prophets and apostles who can see clearly. I need a, an iron rod that will penetrate the mists of darkness. I need help. And heaven has offered it. Paul is offering that help in every letter, trying to cut through the haze, trying to help us see so we can build on the right foundation, so we can avoid the bad breath of the adversary, so we're not tossed to and fro. 
by every wind of false doctrine. And how's Paul doing it? Notice the next verse. It's a fascinating contrary that Paul is trying to prove. Every prophet and apostle attempts this as best as they can. He says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you get past the deceptions of the adversary by speaking the truth. And I'm speaking it in love. It's the balance of those two that is so difficult. That's it's one of my favorite contraries. Because most of us are wired for one or the other. It's going to take effort to balance them both. Okay, Get into the Goldilocks zone. On one extreme are those who speak the truth, but they don't do it very lovingly. Do you know people like that? <laughs> They'll often... Be proud of that fact. They're like, hey, don't mean to hurt your feelings or anything, but I'm just a straight shooter. I say it like it is. That's just how, that's what I am. And you're like, yeah, but what you are is kind of a jerk. There are a lot nicer ways of saying what you just said. You can get your point across. And in fact, you might do a better job of it if you did it with love. Because we'd be able to put our defenses down. But no, the way you throw your truth in my direction... It's, it feels like a projectile, and I'm a little scared. On the flip side, though, do you know those who speak in love but shy away from truth because the truth might be an uncomfortable conversation? The truth might prick a conscience. It might hurt. And I don't want to ruffle feathers or rock the boat, and so I'm not even going to bring it up. I'll just avoid the whole thing. Apostles don't have the luxury of doing that. Apostles have to speak the truth and do it in love so that the truth actually has an audience. That's tough. There have been times I have heard apostles blasted by critics because they don't agree with the truth that the apostle is preaching. Fine. But sometimes they blast the apostles as if they were unloving. When I see them flexing every muscle to try to stay in balance here, doing the very best they can to balance law and love, truth and tolerance, chastity and charity, so many mercy, justice and mercy, so many of the other contraries, they're trying to prove contraries, and they're proving contraries as they try to help us do the same. Understand? I'm amazed by their efforts. And I hope that we can try a little harder to find the balance ourselves. It's interesting because even historically, history is usually the swinging of the pendulum from one extreme to the other, or from one contrary to its opposite. Because if we've been at one extreme too long, we start to realize, wow, this virtue has some vice going on. And so we react against the vice, but we tend to overreact. And therefore, instead of correcting, we have overcorrected. And now we're just dealing with the opposite virtue, which is good, but it has its own opposite vice as well. Huh. It was that vice that we were trying to avoid on the first extreme. And so we just keep swinging back and forth. Okay? Historically, as a culture, in the past, we, we erred on the side of truth. And we didn't care much about speaking it in love. We just said, this is how it is, and this is right and wrong, and it's black and white, and you deal with it, and you fit the mold, or you're out. And we toss them over the middle wall of partition and create some barriers of enmity to keep them at bay. 
Well, that's a problem. But at least we were holding the truth. Well, what did society do? It corrected and overcorrected. There it goes. And now which side are we on? Oh, we speak in love, if we speak at all. We just love. We just let people do whatever they want, and I don't want to judge, and I'm not going to say anything that I consider true. I just, I'm going to be loving and accepting, and you do you, and live your truth, and be authentic, and who am I to pass judgment? That would be incredibly unloving of me. Well, actually, would it? Love in the Lord's way? The pure love of Christ? It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Oh, love and truth are supposed to go hand in hand. They're a match made in heaven, but it's going to take heaven to reveal to us on earth how to keep them in better balance. I've actually found in my own life, as I talk often with people that don't agree with everything I say, and that's fine. I'm trying to gather them together in Christ. I'm trying to see what they see and understand what they know that I don't. I recognize they have gifts that I lack. I will often be overt in my efforts to prove a contrary. I'll explain the process. I'll explain the principle to people and then say, okay, now that we understand that I'm trying to strike this balance, I'm trying to speak the truth in love. I'm trying to balance justice and mercy here. And I'm, I'm, what side do I err on? Typically, I err on the side of mercy. I err on the side of love. But if I realize that I've erred, then usually I can come back and say to my friend, to my conversation partner, what I'm doing is trying to strike this balance. And I feel like the last conversation we had was a little out of balance, but at least it was in a kind direction. And I'll, I prefer that for, for our relationship's sake. But I also have a relationship with God, and I don't want to break the first great commandment in my zeal to keep the second. So if you understand what I'm trying to do here, I'm going to shift just my center of gravity just a little bit back to the other direction. There's some truth I feel like I really need to share. Now, I don't want to overcorrect. I understand that problem too. And so the moment you feel like I'm being unloving in my explanation of truth, you tell me and I'll stop. I'll stop right in my tracks because I don't want, I don't want to be outside the Goldilocks zone on the other side. I don't want to offend you because I love you. That's why I was... That's why I erred on that side the first time. I just want to err a little less this time. So will you let me try to explain where I'm coming from? I'm amazed in those kinds of conversations how, how understanding the other person tends to be. They're like, wow, this really does sound like you're flexing some muscles. Maybe I should honor those efforts and maybe I should flex a few more muscles myself and try to be a little bit more understanding since you're trying to be understanding of me. Okay, where are, you, where are you coming from? I'll try to hear, I'll try to accept your truth in the love that it's given. And we'll see where we go from there. Okay? It, it, again, incredibly powerful contrary. We have to learn to prove. Especially if we're ever going to get to verse 16. Because verse 16, building on a metaphor he used earlier, and that he used elsewhere in other epistles, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, what did you just say, Paul? <laughs> Another one of those long sentences where the syntax makes it a little hard for us to follow his train of thought. Well, slow it down. Let's start at the top. 
The whole body is fitly joined together. Does that ring any bells from the first half? Oh, yeah. He talked about the building fitly framed together. So he started with a construction metaphor, but we got to all come together, stay on the anchor bolts, uh, get those 16 penny nails and hammer those two by fours together. We want the structure to stick. We want it to become one. Well, if that's the construction metaphor, now let's go with the human body metaphor. And just like a building has to be fitly framed together, the human body has to be fitly joined together. Every part. And remember, this is the analogy he used to the Corinthians. That we're all body parts. And the head can't say to the foot, and the eye can't say to the ear, and we're all in this together, and everybody needs everything else. So, for example, the next phrase, when it's compacted by that which every joint supplieth, the New International Version renders that it's held together by every supporting ligament. And that's actually really good anatomy. Ligaments are meant to tie us together. The body parts themselves would otherwise kind of fall apart. But if the ligament holds it, ah, and then if, if other body parts are strong enough to anchor those ligaments, that's why he says it's according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Every part's got to be doing its job. And that's what makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. It's like, man, my body loves my... This body part loves that other body part. I mean, the knee bone's connected to the leg bone, you know, and all those things. Are we connected well, though? I'll give you an example that I hope will help. My, I have some amazing brothers-in-law, again, that are more like brothers than brothers-in-law. And they like, most of them really like to run. I, I don't. I was an athlete in a previous life, but it feels like, a, yeah, a long time ago. But my brothers-in-law wanted to do one of those crazy Ragnar relays. In fact, they wanted to do the granddaddy of them all. It's the Hood to Coast Relay in Oregon, where you start at Mount Hood and then run 200 miles to the Oregon coast. And you have 12 of you, and so you're taking turns and doing the relay, but it's, a, it's brutal especially when you're not a runner. I told my brother-in-law who invited me, you remember that phrase we learned earlier from Paul, to prove the sincerity of your love? I said to my brother-in-law, if this doesn't prove the sincerity of my love, nothing will. I'll run, I'll put myself through pain for you, because I love you. And I started training. Now, I've, I actually love my brother-in-law enough, I've done it twice. Just last month was one, and the two years ago we did it the first time. But I remember the first time I, was, I went out to train for that first run. I was still semi shape, at least I thought I was. And I got out, put on my, laced up my shoes and started to run. And it was like, oh, this is easy. And just put in a couple miles. And then the next day, my knees were, were thrashed to the point that I went to physical therapy and I said, I've never had knee problems. I, I went jogging for the first time in ages yesterday. And now my knees are really hurting. But I've got good knees. It's never been an issue. Well, the physical therapist checked things out and said, actually, I do agree with you. You do have good knees. Problem is, you have no core strength anymore. I'm like, ouch. But guilty is charged. I'm like, what does that have to do with it? I'm not running on my stomach. And he's like, well, let me explain something about ligaments and each body part strengthening other body parts. Let's read a little Ephesians chapter 4, shall we? <laughs> he really would have been speaking my language then. 
But the idea is, if your core is strong, then it's keeping those ligaments tight and it's keeping your kneecap in place. It's all firm and it's all strong. But because your core, your core has atrophied, like, do you have to put it that bluntly? Come on, man. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sit down and do some sit-ups and I bet both of them will, will be really good. That's probably as, as many as I can do. Well, it's strengthening other body parts that help to strengthen the whole. And when it says that it's all edified, it's edifying itself in love, that's the best ligament of all. What ties the body of Christ together? The ligaments of love. Tendons of tenderness. <laughs> Take whatever alliteration you want. But in your ward, in your stake, in the church, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your home. Is love tying us all together? And if there's another body part that seems weak, is it my fault because I've been weak? And it's not bad knees, it's bad core. And I gotta do some sit-ups. You understand, I, I love what Paul is teaching here. I think it's so important as we see just how important every body part is. We really are in this thing together. So let's get in shape, shall we? Paul then teaches in verse 17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. We've got to be different. You Gentiles, I even hesitate to call you that. I'm certainly not going to call you the uncircumcision, like the circumcision often does. But I've got to talk to you. You're different. You're no longer foreigners. You're fellow citizens. But you've got to stop being the old Gentile version of you. Be the new Christian version of you. So here's the things you've got to overcome. You ready for the list? Remember, the second half of Ephesians is trying to give a practical aspect to the first half. The first half is the gospel story. Second half is your personal story. How do I live the gospel? Now that I know the good news, well, what's my life supposed to look like? Well, first of all, you've got to be different. Not conformed to the world, but transformed by Christ, like he said to the Romans. Well, to the Ephesians, here's what you've got to avoid. Don't walk like the other Gentiles walked, in the vanity of their mind. In the first half, he talked about the lusts of the mind, the desires pulling you in wrong directions. Well, here's the vanity of the mind. All what... Thoughts that are self-centered, focused on things that don't really matter. Okay, that's one problem to overcome. Next line. Having the understanding darkened. That's another problem, too. In the first half, he talked about your eyes being enlightened. Well, here's the opposite. Your understanding being darkened. So you don't see the way. You don't realize, I'm walking in the wrong direction. Here's these mists of darkness. No wonder I need an iron rod. Next line. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Ooh, alienated? Remember we saw the word alien before, as in foreigner, as in stranger? You're not strangers anymore. You're fellow citizens. So don't, in, don't estrange yourself all over again. Don't alienate yourself from the life of God. That's just ignorance. And he's given you truth, and the truth has set you free. So this is kind of like foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you. Don't go back to that. Don't let ignorance alienate you from the life that you find in God. And then the next line, because of the blindness of their heart. Mm, not blindness of their eyes, or even blindness of their mind. Blindness of the heart? You can't feel in the right direction? Your heart has been hardened 
So it's no longer fleshy tables for God to write on? Oh, blindness of the heart, who being past feeling, and yeah, that describes blind hearts pretty well, hard hearts pretty well. That was what Laman and Lemuel were described as, past feeling. They have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Great phrase there too, given themselves over. It's like, man, have you guys really given up on yourselves? Have you surrendered? Wave the white flag and let the prince of the powers of the air blow you about with every wind of doctrine? Oh, come on, that's just cunning craftiness. They're lying in wait to deceive. Open your eyes to that. It's not, even worse than your uncleanness is the fact that you're greedy in it. You want more. You are not satisfied by the lust of the flesh. You have an insatiable appetite. And that's a problem that has to be overcome. In verse 20, I love the way Paul puts it. Very boldly, very bluntly. But ye have not so learned Christ. That's amazing. I'm your teacher. And I know I taught you better than that. You, I explained grace and did it in such a way that you would not presume upon it. I taught the commandments of God and encouraged you to live it with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. You're better than that. You know better than that. Jesus has taught you better than that. That is not the Jesus that you learned from me. He goes on, If so be that ye have heard him, and I've been preaching it, and have been taught by him, and you've been taught by me as well, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's a beautiful description of real conversion. We saw a description of going the wrong way in the previous passage, but in these last few verses, that's not the Jesus you, you, you learn. So let's talk about the Jesus that I taught you, the real one. And he's the one that has taught you the importance of putting off the natural man. Take it off. Put off can, the old man, he says. You've outgrown him. Shed that skin. And then, now that it's off, you can put on the new man. That's why I had to remove the old to make room for the new. In the middle of that, he uses the phrase, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which is about a, as good a description of mental health as I've ever heard. Jacob calls it firmness of mind, but I like Paul's too. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. I got this. That is the Jesus that I learned. That's the Jesus that I know. He's going to help me get there. In 25, Paul goes on with some very practical advice. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. So the old man was a liar. The new man is a truth teller. And every one of us needs to be that kind of teller of truth. Because we, we're all in this together. We are members one of another. Why would I lie to myself? But that's what I'm doing when I lie to you. Another example. If dishonesty and honesty was the first, how about anger? Let's talk about that one. Because that's another thing that tends to divide us. That's the middle wall of partition and hostility and hatred. 
So Paul's advice, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Don't even give him any, any room to work, okay? I mean, you give the devil an inch, he's going to take a mile. So start with the inch and don't give it to him. But what if that first inch is an emotional one and the emotion is anger? What do I do with that? Now, it's interesting because here the King James language says, Be ye angry and sin not. Now, hmm, was that stated as a, was that phrased as a sentence, a statement, or was it a, a question? Should there be a question mark there? Joseph Smith actually says, yes, it should. The JST rephrases it this way. Can ye be angry and not sin? And the way I always read that JST in the past was as a rhetorical question, like, well, I mean, of course not. Because anger is sin. So, I mean, can you be angry and not sin? Of course not. So avoid anger at all costs. Well, actually, let's pause for a second. And instead of just assuming it's a rhetorical question, let's act as if it were a real one. Maybe it is. And maybe Paul really is asking, can you be angry and not sin? Seriously, I'm asking if that's a, a possibility for you. Some people can't. Some people, the moment they get up in, ar up in arms, they're taking up arms <laughs> to fight. And anger turns into violence or wrath, animosity, hatred, any outward manifestation of the inner emotion. And it's so fast going from one to the other that their answer would be an honest no. Nope, I can't afford to ever get angry because I go full Hulk, Hulk mode. And, and you don't want to see that. It's out of control. But what if someone were to say, well, that's a good question. Can I? Hmm. Can I be angry and not sin? I'd like to say yes about that. I guess I'll have to prove, <laughs> I'll have to prove it. I may be moved upon betimes by the Spirit to reprove someone. But am I being moved upon by the Spirit, or is it anger? And does the Spirit ever work through anger? I mean, this is good questions. In fact, I just had a, a student of mine ask that exact question after class last week. Because as he admitted to me, anger is kind of his default emotion. And he's a passionate guy. Uh, and he said, the hard part is, I've only ever heard people say that anger is synonymous with sin. It's a sin in and of itself. You've got to eliminate that emotion. And yet, aren't there, aren't there times where that emotion is important? And we had a great conversation because he has a point. If you've seen the Pixar movie Inside Out, it's an amazing portrayal of emotions being personified and separated out and each one has its own role to play. But it's interesting to wrestle with those roles and wonder, are all the roles necessary? Hmm. The most obvious one is the, the conflict between joy and sadness, these two emotion characters. And I'll admit for myself, I am wired for joy and I barely have even a small setting on sorrow. I, I don't get sad. I really don't. I mean, occasionally, maybe once in a blue moon. But man, I don't even recognize it when a bad day comes and slaps me upside the head. And lately, it, a lot, it, I've been slapped a lot. But it's like, <laughs> it tickles. Well, not quite. But I, I just don't get sad. It's not... And it made that movie hard. But then again, it made that movie really important for me. Because at the end, sadness kind of saves the day. 
That was hard for me to swallow. I mean, Joy wanted to cast her out entirely, and that's kind of how I'm wired. But it's like, nope, that emotion has a place, a role to play. And it's an essential one. Hmm. Well, could you say the same of anger? To the point that you would honor anger's place, but always refuse it, refuse anger the possibility of transforming into something that is sinful. Every human emotion is there for a reason. And if it comes to defending your family or defending your faith, if it comes down to Jesus cleansing his father's house, now we don't even, we, we're so scared of the word anger, we, we, we rebrand it as righteous indignation. Whew, that was close. And so, yes, when Jesus cleansed the temple, it was righteous indignation. And I would agree with that. Because that was, what is righteous indignation? Well, it's under control. Remember, Jesus checked out the temple the day before, scoped it out, and then was able to sleep on it and think about it. What's the best approach tomorrow? But was there an element of anger that inspired that action and yet was always reined in? That he could, anger and, he could be angry and not sin. You get, you get it? I mean, here when he says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, that shows that it's under control. Because when the sun goes down with all that burning fire, ah, yes, it yields to a nice, cool night. And so I'm, I, I, this is not anger with a blank check and do whatever you want and stay as long as you'd like. No, there's other emotions that are going to take its place too. And I'm going to be in control of my emotions rather than having the emotion control me. That's part of the spirit over the flesh. But Captain Moroni, there were some angry moments in the war chapters. Uh, there's, there's time and place where, when I played basketball, I was never good at shooting. That was my, my Achilles heel. But I could play defense. And guess what emotion I channeled to motivate me as a defender? It was anger. Now, it wasn't like the kind I was going to punch the guy because I didn't even know the guy. But the coach often would put me on the best, the opposite, the, the other team's best player, and I would just get angry, and not say anything, not but just like, hmm, it it fueled my fire. And and that was anger with no sin involved. Now I've been guilty of anger that was that did involve sin. But this is something worth wrestling with with any emotion. What good, like interrogate your emotions when you're feeling something. Just It's okay to feel it. Have a conversation with it when, as it's there. Oh, why did you come? I haven't seen you in a while. Or I see you all too often. What, what are you doing this time? What are you alerting me to? Oh, that, I actually appreciate that. I needed that. But now that you've provided the information, I'm going to decide what to do about that. And I'll be the one in control here. Okay? Really fascinating points to ponder. Paul then says, speaking of additional sins to overcome, we, we dealt with uh, dishonesty, we dealt with anger. Now, verse 28, let him that stole, oh, so now we're dealing with theft. Let him that stole steal no more. Interesting that he's admitted, like, yeah, you used to do that, didn't you? That was Gentiles in time past. That's who you used to be. You used to be a thief. Don't be that anymore. 
Okay? The past, it's not the end of the world. Just don't drag it into your present. By all means, don't push it forward into your future. Instead, next line, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. And that's beautiful progress. You've moved from negative to neutral. I'm no longer stealing your stuff to provide for myself. I'm now providing for myself. But the step from negative to neutral is only the first step. There's still a second one. So keep reading. That he may have to give to him that needeth. Ah, that's the other step. Now we've moved from neutral to positive. I went from taking your stuff to providing for my own stuff to making a surplus so I could now provide for you. That way you don't have to steal from me and start the, the cycle all over again. No, we've come to the celestial unity that the Lord's been after all along. And if that's true of theft, let's now take it to another concept, and this is communication. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Oh, they're speaking the truth in love, if I've ever seen it. No corrupt communication there. Watch your mouth. Nothing negative. In fact, ideally, even overcome the neutral and seek for a positive approach in every conversation. Where you leave them better than you found them. That's edifying. That's ministering grace. Then, verse 30, kind of overarching principle to follow. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And that verse blows me away. If you really think about what he's saying there, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't alienate the Spirit. Don't, don't drive it away. Because it's through the Spirit whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. In the first half, we saw that the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. Great metaphor. This passage describes it as a seal instead. Think about being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay? The, the stamp of approval is on you. It's all going to work out. Okay? Uh, but here, you better not grieve that spirit because you'd be weakening that seal. I picture oh, Noah on the ark. And what was it that kept the water out? I was built a good gopher wood, but in the ancient world, oh, I don't know how, how, t how fitly framed together the ark's going to be. So what do you do? You chink the gaps and the holes with pitch. And in fact, he did it double layer, inside and out. It says he pitched the ark within and without with pitch. It's the pitch that's keeping the water out. Okay, good. Well, once I realize that that's what the pitch is doing, I don't want to mess with the pitch. I don't want to weaken my waterproofing. You understand? If there's a plug, I'm not going to pick at it. If there's an umbrella, I'm not going to poke holes in it. If I've got pitch on my boat, I'm not picking in it or peeling it apart. Oh no, because then I'm going under. Now think about what Paul just said. It's the Holy Ghost that seals you to the day of redemption. It's through the Spirit that we are sealed unto, unto God. It's the earnest of, our, of our, our inheritance. It's the proof that he's fully invested in our salvation. Well, if that's the case, why would I do anything to offend the Spirit? Why would I grieve it? I've had some good conversations with my young single adult students and said, during your dating and courtship, you've got to have the Holy Ghost with you because you're making an eternal decision here. 
you're deciding who you're going to spend eternity with and who you're going to raise children with. And it's one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in life. And you've got to have the Spirit helping with that decision. Well, if the presence of the Spirit is your only hope, do you understand why you must do nothing to offend that Spirit? Especially as it relates to your relationship with the other person. You have to be pure. You have to be virtuous. You've got to stay clean. Or you have offended the one source of sealing that's going to make the two of you one. You can't afford to do that. No wonder President Nelson has told us, we will not survive spiritually without the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. We can't afford to grieve Him. Okay? And then he ends the chapter with, again, some overarching principles here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Just get, take the whole, the whole pile and just chuck it. Get rid of the whole thing. And if that's gone, what are you left with? Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Yes, be as kind as Christ. Be as forgiving as God, who's forgiving you for Christ's sake, not for your own. That's interesting. Well, it makes sense. I don't deserve the forgiveness. I'm the one that needed it. I can't demand it. But when Christ took my place and broke down that middle wall of partition, washed it away in his blood, brought us into communion through his flesh, when Christ became the curse for me, of course God is going to forgive him. Christ deserves to be forgiven. And then Christ passes that forgiveness on to us. Can't we keep passing it forward to others? Can't we be tender-hearted instead of angry? Can't we be kind instead of bitter? Can't we be forgiving instead of holding a grudge? This is the practical application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is second half of Ephesians, putting into practice the principles of the first half. So grateful that Paul is walking us through this. He's going to walk us through some more in chapter 5. And he begins in verse 1, Be therefore, there's therefore again, same way he started chapter 4, here chapter 5, Therefore, because of all that I've said, be therefore followers of God, as dear children. And another translation of followers, the Greek word could also mean imitators. And that might even be more appropriate. Yeah, children like to play follow the leader, but sometimes they like the imitation game too. And Simon says, or just do as I'm doing, and, and especially watching their parents. Think about how a child learns anything. You can't explain it to them before they learn language. In fact, how do they learn language? By mimicry, by imitation. And so if we are children of God, dear children, Paul says, will we try to be like our dear parents? We were created in their image after all. Can we grow up like that? Here's one example. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Oh, his Jewish half of the audience would have loved that. A sweet-smelling savor? Ooh, there's the altar of incense that filled the tabernacle and temple with sweet, 
odors. That's the altar of sacrifice where, I mean, the whole Temple Mount smelled like a barbecue. Sign me up for that. These are sweet smells, and it's the, in this case, it's the smell of self-sacrifice. Oh, it's, it's the aroma of, of compassion and charity and love. Walk in love. Jesus did. And I can't imagine a better smell than that. In verse 3, oh, oh, I just caught a whiff of something. I must have, must have blown in from the prince of the powers of the air. Some, some nasty bad breath just came in. Because now in verse 3, I smell fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness. But the way Paul says it here, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. And that's zero toleration. That's amazing. I don't even want to hear a hint of wickedness. Not even the slightest suggestion of sin. Don't let it come up a single time. Not once be named neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. And he's not condemning comedy there. This is crude joking, which unfortunately, the easiest way to raise a laugh is to be inappropriate. But that's what Paul is condemning. Next phrase is, which are not convenient. And what he means by that is it's inappropriate. It's out of place. All these things we're trying to overcome as saints. And what can we replace it with? but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So yeah, let's not mention it a single time. But what I loved there is his replacement. How do we overcome all these wicked acts? Well, how about through the act of gratitude? Oh, that seems too easy, too simple. Well, give it a try. And if you are constantly counting your many blessings, if you're seeing the hand of God behind all that you have, it's kind of hard to slap that hand away and do something against it. Work on gratitude. It can serve as a guard against all kinds of temptations. Then verse 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words. There's the deception we saw before, the slight of men, the cunning craftiness, the lying in wait to deceive. Don't let it happen. Let no man deceive you with vain words. There's flattering words like the Antichrist always used. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And that's not the side of the family tree you want. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Over and over, Paul is comparing past to present. Oh, you used to be one of those Gentiles, but you don't walk like that anymore. You used to be a foreigner. Now you're a fellow citizen. You used to, sometimes, you were darkness. But get past it. Move forward. In fact, if you leave darkness behind you, you won't even see any shadows because you're coming toward the light. And as children of the light, walk that way. It's your divine inheritance. In verse 9, Paul then teaches the Ephesians something similar to what he taught the Galatians last week. He says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Or another way to say that, find out what pleases the Lord. Proving is testing and trying. So find out. 
test it. What is acceptable unto the Lord? See, well, we, we know some of his pet peeves, but what is it that he really loves? Well, he loves goodness and righteousness and truth. Those are the fruits, some of the fruits of the Spirit. And where the fruit is, like we saw last week, the tree must be nearby. The fruit doesn't fall far from it, right? And so, are we, is that what we're working toward? Is that what we're aiming for? It's going to help us achieve the unity that we're, we're supposed to be after. Goodness, righteousness, truth. He then says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. That's why he said earlier, I don't even want it to be once named, mentioned among you. It's a shame to even have to talk about this stuff. And this is coming from Paul who keeps giving us lists of iniquity, right? He wishes he didn't have to, but he'll speak the truth in love. Ah, what a shame, though. We have to reprove those works of darkness. But interesting the word he used to describe those works. He called them unfruitful. Now, this is right on the heels of speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. And fruit, well, grows based on the law of the harvest. You plant apples, it's, apple is the fruit you're going to harvest, right? You reap what you sow. But interesting, the unfruitful works of darkness, I find that interesting because he doesn't, I mean, he, he labels things sin left and right. But here, he, instead of making some kind of moral stand, he's already done that elsewhere, but instead of the moral stand of that's an iniquitous work of darkness, no, it's just an unfruitful one. And that's a softer approach. Maybe that's a way of speaking truth more lovingly than otherwise, that rather than trying to legislate morality or rather than trying to tell somebody that they're doing something immoral or evil in a kinder, gentler way to simply say, you're doing something unfruitful if you're trying to harvest certain positive fruit. If you're trying to reap goodness and righteousness and truth, that's not how it's going to come. You're planting the wrong seed. So I, I'm not trying to call you out and say that you're iniquitous. It, it, in some ways, it's more, it's, it's ineffective. It's unproductive. It's never going to get you to where you want to go. The, the law of the harvest, just, that's, that's not what you're planting. What are, you, what are you trying to harvest, by the way? What are you looking for? What are you trying to get out of life? Because I bet if we can identify that fruit, we can find a more fruitful way to harvest it. Okay? I've had some interesting conversations with people about that, where I'm not passing moral judgment. I'm just saying, you know, that, that's, you're not, you're not going to get what you're looking for that way. Let's look for more fruitful approaches. Then verse 13, but all things that are reproved, and remember he just said, you got to reprove the dark things. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That's why we're trying to bring you out of the shadows, out of the darkness, into the light. Because the light is going to make manifest the things that you still need to work on. Okay? Once it gets exposed to that light, well, now you know what needs to be corrected in yourself. He then says, wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest. I mean, the light's shining. It's no longer dark night. So get up, get out of bed. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. How's that for the stark reality of awake as the metaphor for death and waking up as the metaphor for being raised from the dead? 
This is resurrection, physical and spiritual, all over again. Just like he said at the beginning of Ephesians. He then says, see that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And by redeeming the time, what he means is make the most of every opportunity you have. You still got some time. There's still some clicks on the, t- on the clock. So do something with it. Don't procrastinate the day of your repentance. Sow and reap before the summer is passed and the harvest is ended and your soul is not saved. Okay? If you think about it, especially in these dark days, your light is desperately needed. So redeem the time. These days are pretty evil after all. Verse 17, he then says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And he's been trying to clarify that will throughout the whole epistle. He says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And maybe there's a play on words as far as the way we often talk about spirits, as in liquor, but the Spirit as in the the gift of God. Remember the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was shed forth upon the people and yet the skeptics thought they were drunk with new wine? Oh, no, no, no. Different Spirit we've been imbibing. And then he says one of the best ways to be filled with that Spirit, one of the best ways to manifest it, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, speaking to yourself that way? Oh, yeah, just have a hymn in mind. Hum it to yourself. Sing along. Next, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I love that it's in your heart, by the way. Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that the Lord rejoices in the song of the heart, which bypasses the vocal cords for those that don't think they sound very good. He doesn't care about the tonal quality. He cares about the sincerity that lies beneath. I've heard plenty of beautiful musical numbers but it only came from the mouth. It wasn't emerging from the heart. I've heard others where, whew, well, what they lack in, in pitch, they make up for with feeling. So sing, make melody, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful list of things we can work on to overcome the evil of the world. Discernment, Understanding the will of the Lord. Self-control or temperance. Not giving ourselves to excess. Music. Either silent or sung. And gratitude. There it is again. Guarding, uh, guarding against lesser things. And then for most of the rest of this chapter, he will turn to relationships. I mean, some of this has been relational already. You know, stealing and honesty and so on and so, on and so forth. But the most intimate relationships, the ones that take place typically within the home, within the family, there's a real place to start living the gospel. Okay? So how are we going to do that? Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that's non-gender specific. We're all submitting ourselves to one another. Uh, no, you go first. It's, it's forbearing. It's forgiving. It's all of those things. I'll, I'll submit. I'm, I'm okay. I'll yield. And now let's get more specific gender-wise. Let's start with the sisters. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, careful, before we get up in arms, realize that this is a step in the right direction. It's just not every step. We are going from telestial to terrestrial. There's still time ahead to go from terrestrial to celestial. And we're getting closer to that in our day. Still got some work to do. But think about going from a, a very misogynistic patriarchy to a benevolent one. It's still patriarchy, but at least it's a patriarchy that is Christ-like. It's one, this is what we talked about in, in Corinthians, right? That there's this sense of neither the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. But some other thing, that's the overarching truth. But Paul also talks about a, a patriarchal order of sorts. And, but in the way he puts it is, husbands, you better be following the Lord if you ever expect your wife to follow you. You can picture, I mean, don't read this from a 21st century perspective. Read it from a 1st century perspective. And, and Christian wives would love this verse. It's like, whoa, <laughs> you just put my husband between a rock and a hard place. You said, I have to follow him as he follows the Lord. Thank you for that. Because I just want to follow the Lord too. And if my husband's doing it, hey, we can do it together. And that's what it's all for, right? Now, like I said, there's still some growing up to do until we reach the proclamation on the family where they are, where husbands and wives are equal partners in things and making adjustments based on individual circumstance and all that you're up against and so on and so forth. But to see here, this first step, can we all become more Christ-like? And if I have a, a truly Christian spouse, then I'm happy to do things his way. But it doesn't stop there. And this is important too. We're not only going to tell the sisters, you, know, you got some work to do. No, brethren, I've got, you got some work to do too. In fact, if you had ears to hear, you would have heard your, some of your work in what I said to your, to your spouse. Oh, I got to step up. I got to be more Christ-like in my leadership, don't I? And she's like, uh-huh, glad you heard that, honey. Well, in case we didn't, now let's be a little more overt in verse 25. Husbands, this is for you. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it might be holy and without blemish. Now, the end of that's pretty powerful, but by the end, we've probably lost track of the beginning. By the end, we really are talking Christ in the church and all the, th the things that he did. But remember, he's just using that as a metaphor to try to teach husbands what, what real covenant companionship is meant to look like. Take every verb that we saw Jesus do for the church. And husbands, figure out what the mortal equivalent would, of that would be toward your wife. Here's the list. Love. Give yourself, ooh, there's that sweet savor of self-sacrifice again. Sanctify it, cleanse it, make it holy, make it without blemish. Now, again, that sounds too much like church, but can I do that to my companion? Can I do that for her? The way he puts it, that Jesus could present it to himself, that seems self-serving. Well, then you don't know Jesus. He's the one that said, if you'll lose your life, that's the only way you really find it. 
And so everything I did for the church, of course it came back to bless me. We're one with each other. And anything I do for the church comes back to bless me and my mission, what I'm trying to accomplish. Well, isn't it the same true within a couple, within a marriage? The, the old saying is, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> and there's truth to that, but it can't be self-serving from the start. It can't be, ooh, I'm going to do these so-called good deeds to my spouse so she owes me. Or I'm going to really butter her up with this, and then she'll do what I want. No, she's going to see through that. Wives are a lot smarter than husbands sometimes give them credit for. Okay, But to, to put your companion first, to love and serve, oh, it'll come back to bless you. You don't even have to think about that. In fact, you won't be. You'll be on to the next thought of how do I serve my spouse more selflessly. But I also want to pause here and, and think about what he is saying about the church and what he's saying about our marriages because he's tying the two together. I mean, this is the, the analogy. When you took the ACT or the SCT, you had to do those, right? This is to this as that is to that. Uh, cat is to kitten as dog is to uh, puppy, right? You're figuring out relationships. And that's important, especially as we're talking about relationships here. So, husband is to wife as Christ is to the church. Hmm. Hold on to that for a moment. Let's start with that. Take that analogy and look at marriage and think of what the relationship between Jesus and the church and how should that affect you. He goes on with that in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. That's that. It's, it ends up blessing you even though you're not trying to be self-serving. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. So there's a few more verbs we could add to our earlier list. Nourish, cherish. That means to love and to feed, to help grow. I've always loved what, President, what Sister Hinckley said about President Hinckley. She said in great gratitude, he always gave me wings. He helped me fly. He helped me rise above what I otherwise would have been. And that has always motivated me, wanting to help my wife spread her wings, to feed, to nourish, to cherish. And the best example I've ever seen is how Jesus treats all of us, right? He then says in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Well, we remember that from Genesis, right? There's the marriage in Eden. Then Paul says, this is a great mystery, and we've talked about several of those in this letter. But the whole mystery of leaving parents to become one with a spouse, oh yeah, to becoming one, that's just like the earlier mystery I said. But now it's within a home, within a family. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's really what, I, what I'm talking about here. Nevertheless, if you want to stick with the other side of the analogy, fine. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So Paul seems to be bouncing back and forth between the, the symbolic and the literal. And I'm like, are you talking about family or marriage? Or are you talking about church? And he's like, yes, I am. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Draw the two together. 
on the one hand, I want my marriage to look like Christ's treatment of the church. And wow, that's, that's holding me to a high standard. Christ laid down his life for the church. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Is your marriage going to be that self-sacrificing? I mean, think about this in terms of marriage. Think about it when you're sealed and you're in the, in the ceiling room. And I remember Uncle Mike teaching, us, teaching me this, that you look in those mirrors and they represent eternity. That was obvious. But I, something else he said that I loved. I mean, here they are, the reflection bouncing off of each other for eternity. And you can see eternity before and eternity behind and all your ancestors and all your descendants. And you're the, <laughs> you're the link within this chain. But I remember him saying, look into the reflection. Isn't it beautiful? And then he said, but yeah, isn't there something that kind of gets in the way? To have a totally open view of and let eternity extend. What's, what's in the way? Oh, it's me. It's my reflection. Yeah, think about that. The one thing that will keep you from seeing eternity in your marriage is by focusing on yourself. Don't you wish you could kind of do a quick head fake <laughs> and get your reflection out, out of the picture just long enough that you can come back in and really see the view. Of course, if I look at my spouse, I can see the view all the way. Plus, the view's a whole lot better than looking at me. <laughs> I wish he could say the same. But then again, where am I sealed? At an altar. Ooh, there's the sweet savor of sacrifice. What am I laying at the altar to offer it up and not ask for anything in return? I'm putting myself on that altar. I no longer exist. Only you do. And don't worry, she's doing the same. This is covenant marriage. And Jesus shows the perfect example of it. But that's if we take the metaphor in this direction. If we take it in the opposite it tells us something about Christ in the church. And it's, it's beautiful. I've sometimes asked my students, so who was Christ married to? And they're like, ooh, are we speculating? I'm like, actually, no, we're not. Give me a scriptural reference. Who was Christ married to? And it's only those who know their Ephesians 5 well that they'll be able to come and say, it's the church. And they all get disappointed, like, oh, I thought we were going to get some Gnostic knowledge. I'm like, nope. If the scriptures are silent on it, we should probably follow their cue. But when it comes to Christ and the church, that's a beautiful companionship. We saw it running throughout the Old Testament, right? Jehovah and Israel, match made in heaven. We saw Hosea acting it out to try to correct Israel from its infidelity. Well, in the New Testament, it's Christ and the church, but it's the same loving relationship. And the fact that Jesus would do anything for his covenant companion, will we do anything for him in return? We've talked about this before as we've discussed, who's your daddy? <laughs> and if Christ is the father of our covenant, then who's the mother of our covenant? The church is. Every covenant we make is in the name of Christ and through the church of Christ. Take it with the proclamation to the world. And what are, what are the roles of the father? to preside, provide, and protect. And Jesus does all of those. He presides over our salvation. He provides for every need through his, the riches of his grace. He protects us from the consequences of sin and death. 
And what does the church do for us? Like any good mother, it nurtures us. I don't know of a better verb for what the church has done for me in my life. Such a nurturing mother she is. We also have talked about the other, the other option. If we're not children of the covenant, then we're children of disobedience. We haven't come to the light. We're stuck in the darkness. And if I haven't chosen Christ as my father, then, well, Lucifer's always waiting in the wings, ready to claim us. I mean, he wanted to be the father from pre-mortality on, right? But he knows that in a choice between Jesus and Lucifer, nobody's going to pick the devil. So what's he do? He hides behind his wife and hopes that we'll choose her and get stuck with him. You see, if Christ married his church, then so did the devil, the great and abominable church, also known as the whore of all the earth, also known as the great and spacious building, also known as the wicked world. If we want to give names to them, Christ married Zion and Satan married Babylon. And so, yeah, we can't be like the old Gentile us. We've got to come out of the wicked world, overcome the natural man, put it off, put off the old, put on the new and be changed. It's tough. We've got to live like mother number one while we're stuck with mother number two here in this wicked world. It's like Cinderella and the evil stepmother. But if she could do it, so could we. Come unto Christ. Hold to the church. Honor their relationship. I fear that sometimes we pit them against each other and say, oh, I love the gospel, but I don't like the church. Or I'd follow Jesus, but I kind of still want to hold on to the ways of the world. And no, that's forcing him into an adulterous relationship. And he refuses. Okay. There's powerful things that Jesus is teaching, or that Paul is teaching in both directions here. Our marital status, as well as our discipleship status. And after that, he gives us one last glorious chapter. Ephesians 6 is another one of my favorites. I've loved every chapter. But he's going to build on what he's just said at the end of 5 and then move toward his grand finale, which is world famous. He's talked about relationships within the home as in husband and wife. But in chapter 6, let's, instead of the horizontal equal partners, now let's go vertical with parent and child because still there's some work that that relationship needs as well. So chapter 6, verse 1, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I'll even give you some Old Testament backup for that. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And what was that promise? That it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. I've sometimes joked that, of course, that's the promise. Because if you talk smack to your parents, I took you into this, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. So yeah, you won't live long upon the land, because <laughs> I'm booting you out of it. Well, I hope that's not the case. But there is something true about if I'll honor my parents, then perhaps my life will be extended because my children will see that example and end up honoring me. And with their support in my old age, how they'll start providing for me as I provided for them. Okay, Beautiful how the family can come full circle multi-generationally. But I also love the, the caveat he gives at the beginning. In the Old Testament version, it's honor thy father and mother and kind of leaves it at that. Oh, okay, well, if you have good parents, then that's good advice. But what if you're, you don't have good parents? What if honoring them is moving me in the wrong direction? What if they're abusive? What if they're not the kinds of parents that any child should follow? Am I still supposed to honor them? 
Well, that's why I love Paul's New Testament version of that, because it includes the condition. Obey your parents in the Lord. You get it? If your fathers, lowercase f, are interfering with your ability to follow the Father, capital F, then you know which one you're supposed to follow. It's, it's God. You get it? Remember, Abraham was that way. My fathers are not worth following. So I'm going to seek for the blessings of the fathers instead. Or Elder Uchtdorf gave an incredible conference talk years ago called Faith of Our Father. And he made a point of distinguishing it between, against the faith of our fathers, plural. Because that's just mortal. He said, in my case, what's the faith of my fathers? Well, it's Lutheranism. And those who feel like I can't join the church because that wouldn't be true to my fathers. Well, not joining the church wouldn't be true to your father, capital F. So no matter what the faith of your fathers might have been, find out what the faith of your father in heaven is and fully embrace it. Children, that's what you should all do. By the way, that's the best honor you could ever bring to your earthly fathers by following your heavenly one. But if that's the children toward the parent, what about the parent toward the child? We saw the wife toward the husband and the husband back to the wife. We've now seen children to parent. What about parent to child? Well, interestingly, Paul only focuses on fathers here. And maybe he means to include mothers too. Maybe it's more of the generic parents. But the specific counsel he gives, I do think it's a little more pointed to dads than to moms. Because this seems to be a paternal problem more than a maternal one. He says in verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And the New International Version of provoke says, Do not exasperate them. The Greek word is actually even better. It means to anger alongside. And what a great description of provoking. I'm angering you and you're angering me and we're just going to provoke each other. And the, the heat is going to spread and we're all going to end up well, angering and sinning against each other. That's not what we should do. That's why Paul says in the next line, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is so much better than provoking them, even when you're just trying to parent them. Again, this is why I'm warning dads, and moms, if this applies to you, then please take it personally as well. But looking at myself and comparing me to my wife, I provoke my kids way more than my wife does. Because sometimes I'm, lean, I'm erring on the side of truth while she's erring on the side of love. And we both want what's best for our kids. We both know that about each other and about ourselves. But there are times where the way I go about it is too strong-armed or too strong-willed and I end up provoking instead of persuading. And I end up getting angry at them, and they get angry right back. And I guess I, guess I deserved it. I actually remember years ago being in a, a meeting of younger couples with a panel of older couples showing us the ropes. And this one very respected old-timer spent a lifetime in religious education. He was a state president where he lived. And... We all knew him and loved him. And at one point he said, you know, when I was a young father, I was very even-tempered. And we're like, well, yeah, of course, you're better than the rest of us. But how did you do that? But then he started laughing at himself. He's like, yeah, I was even-tempered. I was mad all the time. 
And then we all laughed and were like, oh, that's what you meant by even-tempered. Yeah, we, I had a temper and it was even, evenly hot, evenly high the whole time. Just kind of always simmering, frustrated with my kids for not living up to my paternal expectations. Oh, and there have been times I'm like, yikes, have I been too even-tempered toward my children to the point that I've provoked them? And it doesn't do any good for either party much less to the relationship we're supposed to be sharing. What should I be doing instead? Well, proving a contrary. I should raise them, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I do sense some connotation that pulls those two apart, even though Paul's trying to bring them to the two together. The nurture of the Lord, wait a minute, that seems to be more like a motherly thing, right? I mean, isn't that the mother's role to nurture? Well, yeah, but you dads, I guess you need to be a little bit more mothering yourself. And maybe you moms need to be a little more fathering. If your kids need admonition as well as nurturing, they're going to need both. But to provide both, nurture, there's a soft and kind and we got this, we can do this. The admonition, this is what the Lord expects. This is speaking the truth in love all over again. I am actually blown away by something that President Harabi Lee's daughter once said when asked, what was it like to be raised by your amazing parents? And she said, I will always be grateful to have been raised by a father who was gentle beneath his firmness and a mother who was firm beneath her gentleness. Now that's genius. Notice she didn't say, I'm grateful I had a dad that was firm and a mom that was gentle because between the two of them, well, I had both approaches. No, because if it's if it's that divided, then the kids are going to divide the parents and go with whichever one they want under the circumstances. They're going to pit parents against each other, and that's a problem. So it's not just about proving the contrary as a couple. It's about each member of the couple proving their own contrary. If I'm wired for firmness, I've got to develop my, just, my, my gentleness. And if I'm wired for gentleness, I've got to work on my firmness. I've got to develop both sides. That way... The kids don't even know which one they should go with. <laughs> no kidding. That way the kids know that my parents really are equal partners and they're trying to raise me both with short-term and long-term in mind, with both gentleness and firmness. I'm going to get both from either party. And either way, they're offering me the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm going to need both, right? Now, having described husband and wife, having addressed parent-child, let's go with one that doesn't seem to apply quite as much anymore and good riddance to the old way. Because for his third example, he's going to talk about masters and servants. And servant might even be too soft of a, of a term. Slavery was part of the culture of the Roman Empire. It wasn't race-based, but it was, oh, you're not like us. We've conquered your people, and so now you have to serve. But how should we serve? And how should we master? Verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. And hopefully it's not fear induced by an angry master. No, that, I'll talk to him in just a second. But we're talking fear and trembling as in reverence and honor. Do it in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service, as men pleasers, 
Again, that's just trying to be self-serving as you're supposedly serving your master. No, don't do it that way. But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Hmm. Now, some immediately complain, come on, Paul, why didn't you condemn slavery? And there are times I wish he had. We'll talk more about this when we get to the book of Philemon in a couple of weeks. But it is interesting to realize that rather than change the Roman Empire, let's change its citizens, starting with the fellow citizens of the saints. Rather than work on the outside, let's work on the inside. Because if we only change the outside and the inside hasn't altered, then it's just a matter of time that the outside is going to go bad again. So let's work from the, outside, or from the inside out. Let's take you in the social circumstance you find yourself in and then become as Christ-like as you possibly can be. Servants, imagine if your master were the Lord. Remember how Paul had said, I'm a prisoner of Christ, but I'm in willing servitude. If you treated your masters that way, I wonder what effect it would have. A truly Christian servant, would you be contagious and end up with a truly Christian master? Well, if not, let me be more overt here also. So, verse 9, you masters, yeah, I'm talking to you too, do the same things unto them. Forbearing threatening. This is not the lash or the whip. This is not threats. You need to see them the way the Lord sees them. He says, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. So how's that? You've got a master too. You want him to treat you the way you're treating your servants? Careful. Neither is there respect of persons with him, Paul says. So this is the golden rule meeting the law of the harvest. This is a reminder that we're all servants and unprofitable ones at that, King Benjamin would remind us. But if I know that I will be judged the way I judge others and I will be treated by my master the way I treat those who serve me. It's interesting in the church with all of the changing of callings. I hope you're kind to the people who serve under you because it's only a matter of time till you serve under them. Okay? And this is important within that cultural context to try to develop even healthy relationships or try to develop healthy relationships even there. And then one last thing, okay? Have we clarified those relationships? If so, then I'm ready to end my letter with a grand finale. In verse 10, he says, finally, my brethren. So I really am wrapping up here. Last thing I've, I'm going to say, we're trying to implement, we're trying to take the principles of the gospel and put them into practical application. And maybe the best one of all is what I'm about to say here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. All that might I described back in chapter 1. He is mighty to save, and if you'll tap into that power, you will have strength sufficient for any work. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And this is the famous passage in Ephesians 6. It's so famous, it's repeated in Doctrine and Covenants 27. 
but put on the whole armor of God. The whole thing. You can't afford to leave a single piece missing. But put on, the Greek word there, also means to clothe. So clothe yourself in the armor of God. But that same word also means to endow. To endow originally means to clothe. You're wearing sacred clothing when you are endowed with power. And what kind of clothing here? It's amazing to picture an endowment of armor. Some protective covenant clothing. Next time you go through the initiatories, think about the blessing upon every body part and put on the whole armor of God. He says that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the wiles, there's his schemes, his strategies, his cunning craftiness, his sleight of hand, everything we saw earlier. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That would almost be too easy. I see the enemy. I know how to, what he's going to do against me. But no, that's not what we're fighting against. We're fighting against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Oh, this is that horrible wind coming from the prince of the powers of the air. This is tossing us to and fro. Every wind of doctrine, we've got our work cut out for us. It's war. And as Elder Maxwell said, it's a real war with real casualties. Sadly, we know some of those casualties ourselves. So, how can we prepare for battle? Verse 13 he begins to describe this armor, all of which we must put on. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And that is the ultimate victory, to still be standing when every enemy is down. They have fallen, I have not. So stand, therefore, he says, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, every body part so far protected by a very specific piece of protective equipment. Let's analyze each one. Starting with the loins and girding them about with truth. In the ancient world, the loins represented the seat of strength and of vigor. I mean, that's where your strength emerges from. That's, you have the power of creation in your loins. And that's God's department. Wow. So to gird about my loins with truth? Hmm. In the literal way, this is a belt. Okay. But symbolically and spiritually, what if every act of strength were covered by truth? That my acts of creation brought greater truth into the world. And truth itself controlled my every move. Moving to the heart that's covered and protected by the breastplate of righteousness. The heart is the seat of your desires. And it's those desires that determine your decisions. So if my heart is covered, protected by righteousness... What do I want? Only righteous things. What will my choices be? Always righteous ones. And then my feet, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
My feet is where I go. I, I'm picturing Mercury here, <laughs> the winged shoes. And to run and not be weary, to run and not trip up over things. I can sprint across even unsteady ground. My shoes are laced. I'm ready to run. And run where and run to do what? Well, I have the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm in sprinter's stance, ready to run across the earth and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. Well, it doesn't seem to be barefoot. They're shod with preparation. And yeah, I'm ready to run. Now, so far we have certain body parts protected, but some are still left exposed. So keep reading verse 16 and 17. And above all, We'll come, to, come back to that. But this seems to be the most important one on the list. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, these last mentioned pieces of equipment, the helmet of salvation, if righteousness is covering my feelings. Salvation is covering my thoughts. Salvation on the mind 24-7. Think about the ancient high priests that would have a gold plate across the forehead that was inscribed with the words, holiness to the Lord. Is that on your mind at all times? I mean, we talked earlier in a letter, another letter of Paul about captivating every thought to Christ, bringing those, the wandering mind into bondage. Well, to cover my mind, my head, with thoughts of salvation, it's going to change things for me. And then a sword. I Thank you. I finally have an offensive weapon. I can, I can fight back instead of just kind of hunkering down and, and being shielded from your blows. Actually, it's not just offensive. It can be defensive, too. I can parry your thrusts as I use my sword to protect myself but also to fight back. And what does the sword represent? Here it is the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. Oh, the Word makes it strong. The Spirit makes it sharp. Sharp as a two-edged sword unto the dividing asunder of both joint and marrow. The Doctrine and Covenants begins with lots of talk about that sword. The Lord says His arm is bathed in heaven. What's He carrying in it? The sword. His word is about to be revealed. It's about to come down and separate people that will listen to it from people that will not. It will cut to the chase. It's an iron rod that cuts through the mists of darkness. This sword is piercing and protecting. Remember when Jesus was attacked on the Mount of Temptation, and what did he fight back with? Scripture and Spirit. Oh, no, for thus it is written. And there he is pulling out his sword and then following the Spirit to a different place, away from the adversary's attack. We have to get better at wielding the sword of the Spirit and the Word. We have to know it better or we will be deceived. We have to have the Spirit with us, sealing us, protecting us as his own. I pray that our time together is good fencing lessons, good time to master 
the sword. But above all, even more important than any of those other things, above all, take the shield of faith. And the more I've pondered this, especially in my work with people who are struggling in their faith, people who have lost the shield, people who sometimes even minimize its importance, ah, what's, what's a shield going to do anyway? Especially if, if it's faith, huh? That's pretty flimsy. Well, the way you're describing it, maybe. Is yours made of tinfoil? Or you got vibranium? <laughs> that way it becomes even a, another offensive weapon, Captain America. But the shield of faith, think about it. This is the only piece of the armor that can cover everything. The, head, the helmet's great for the head, but it does nothing for any other body part. Breastplate, yeah, it'll protect the heart, but not your legs. You need feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace for that. But the shield, especially if it's, if it's mighty faith, if you have a lot of it, you can hunker down behind that shield and it protects everything else. The whole person. That's the kind of faith we need to develop. But also, this is a fascinating shield because it has a quenching effect hmm. on fiery darts. Now, first of all, why would Satan be using darts, and particularly fiery ones? First of all, the nice thing about a dart is I don't have to come at you with hand-to-hand -hand combat. I can stay back from a safe distance, and that kind of sounds like the adversary, wanting to avoid hand-to-hand -hand combat, especially if you're really tr trusty with your, with your sword. Oh no, I'll stay, because that way I can turn and tail and run whenever I need to. But I'm going to be lobbying these, these darts every chance I get. And they're going to be fiery, because if it's fire, mm, if I can put it, think about it this way, and maybe I'm taking this too literally, but I would assume that even if you're wearing the, the armor, you probably have some clothing underneath. Otherwise, it might be a little cold when you put it on. Uh, in, in that case, though, if there are parts of me that are flammable, I don't know if you can catch armor on fire, but you can catch my underclothing on fire. And if there's chinks in the armor or even kind of gaps where the joints are, if a fiery dart hit that and it ignited my underclothing, first thing I'm doing is stripping off the armor. Otherwise, I'm cooking myself in an oven that I'm wearing. Well, isn't that Satan's hope? If he can intensify things, if he can... If he can turn up the heat to the point that we want to remove our armor, we stop thinking about salvation, we stop desiring righteousness, we stop preparing to share the gospel of peace, we just lay it aside because things are too hot. Oh, we're dead, we're goners. So what's going to quench that? Well, faith will. Faith is our first line of protection. Not, again, not only because faith can handle everything, cover everything, it quenches everything. But here's the interesting thing that I've realized in, this, in my work with people that are struggling. It usually seems to start with specific issues, individual questions, and it'll kind of fester in them. And they'll be wondering about this element of church history, or this doctrine, or this policy, or this practice, and it just kind of chafes them a bit, and they're struggling with it, and they're wondering. But you know what? If they have faith, those things don't tend to bother them much. 
They're like, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But good thing I have a testimony of the truth. I don't really understand this part in the Book of Mormon, but the Spirit has borne witness to me that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. So I, I believe. I don't really understand Joseph's actions in this period of church history, but I know he's a prophet of God. So I'm going to cut him some slack until I learn more. Now, that's incredibly powerful faith. What's interesting, though, is that's got to be so frustrating to the adversary. He's like, mm, my fiery dart was aimed perfectly right at that issue. And then he moved the shield and it glanced right off it, quenched it. Mm. And I tried again over there and he moved the shield in that direction. And ugh, the one thing I can't seem to get around is faith. Okay, fine. Stop. Everybody change of tactics, change of direction. We're no longer going to take pot shots at specific parts of church history. Okay? We're no longer going to raise the individual issues. Instead, let's focus on their faith and try to take it down. First of all, let's reduce faith to something flimsy. Let's, let's be reductionist in our definition of faith and just kind of call it something, oh, you mean you're gullible, you're naive, you believe in fairy tales? Faith? No, that's just, oh, belief in the impossible. And I'm fascinated by some of the flimsy definitions people use, the reductionist descriptions of faith. So it really does feel flimsy. Like, yeah, why was I believe? Why was I just going with the flow that my parents taught me? See, that's actually part of it, too. To make faith flimsy to the point we no longer see it as a shield. Sometimes Satan will, the way I describe it, he'll shift from the propositional to the epistemological. I know those are big words. Proposition, like here's all these propositions of the faith, like articles of faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? How about this? What about that? And in the past or early on in our struggle, Satan will take aim at those individual things. But like I said, if you have faith, we don't, we don't second guess that. I can't answer it as clearly as I wish I could, but my faith protects me. So Satan shifts from the propositional to the epistemological. And epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do I know what I say I know? Because if you say, but I know it's true, then Satan starts asking, well, how do you know? You can't know that. What do you mean? That, that, that's the way you know these things. By the way, Korahor does that perfectly. Korahor, when he's denying Alma's epistemology, he says three different things. How do you know? You don't know. And you can't know. Mm, that's just taking a sledgehammer to that shield, hoping that you can, he can crack it or get you to lower it. Like, what was I thinking? I, I don't know anything. He'll say things, Satan will say things like, oh, that's just elevated emotion. That's not testimony. That wasn't the Holy Ghost. There's no such thing. Again, elevated emotion is what they usually chalk it up to. To which I'll usually say, I'm sorry it's been so long since you really felt the Spirit that you would mistake it for mere emotion. There is some overlap, perhaps, but it is such a deeper reality that it's not mere emotionalism that I'm feeling. There's something beyond that. But you have to experience it yourself to acknowledge its reality. Sometimes they'll say, oh, it's just oh, confirmation bias. It's how you were raised. It's what you want to believe. So you're like, oh, just please still have faith. That's flimsy. To which I say, 
Confirmation bias? What about the times it doesn't confirm what I want? Because I'd rather have your side be true. It sure sounds easier. Or times I've really been wishing I could gain a testimony of a certain thing, and the answer is just not coming. Sometimes the, the fact I can't feel the Spirit is evidence that the Spirit isn't just me. He's an outside agent and can choose or not choose to participate. Huh. Okay, maybe my faith is stronger than that. Or sometimes they'll take the sledgehammer and say, oh, that's just self-induced. You're just willing yourself to feel certain things. To which I always say, self-induced? If it were, I'd be inducing all the time because I love the feeling of the Holy Ghost. But again, the fact I can't always make myself feel it. It's an outside influence. And it's one that has made my shield unbreakable. Faith can be can be strong. As Jesus asked, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? Will he find people, noble, bold warriors, still standing in the field? Oh, bloodied but unbowed, with shield still in arm that helped them conquer. Above all, that's what we're going to need. Because above all, that's what the adversary is trying to take down. Now, Paul has a few more things to say in the context of the conquest. He says in 18, praying always with all power and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. That's about as good a description of true prayer as I've ever seen. You're praying always. It's all prayer. It's supplication. The Spirit is there supplicating alongside you. You're watching. You're persevering. You're supplicating. It's selfless because it's for all the saints. That's real prayer. And that's the kind of prayer that every spiritual soldier needs. I think we're still talking armor of God when we get to verse 18. In fact, in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we're told to pray always that you may come off conqueror. Huh. Yeah, it's a fight, all right. Am I watching, or at least watching the watchmen on the tower who have a better view and vantage point than the rest of us? Yes, I need those prophets and apostles to build upon Um, Am I supplicating for all saints, knowing that I've got friends in the battlefield that are suffering and struggling too? It's interesting because I mentioned already that section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants repeats the armor of God. I mean, Paul's description was so powerful, even Jesus loved it. It's like, ooh, that's good, Paul. I like that. Can I I quote you on that? And he does. But the context is fascinating. Because section 27, it's the context of the second coming. It's the grand last sacrament meeting at Adam on Diamond. I mean, end of the world, Armageddon, there's the battle for you. So yeah, you better be wearing the armor of God. And in some ways, the armor of God becomes the dress code for that sacrament meeting. You want to come, you better, you better be well prepared. And it's, it's the fight that we're preparing for. So take upon yourself the whole armor of God. Cover everything and pray your way forward. Pray for courage, for strength, for grace sufficient for the battle that lies ahead. 
pray for faith. Pray for preparation and salvation and righteousness and truth. Elder Packer once said, and I, I think this ties together what we saw in Ephesians 5 and the beginning of 6 to what we're seeing here at the end. He said that the armor of God and the shield of faith is not mass-produced in some kind of factory, even if it's a factory of faith like a church. No, he said the shield of faith is best forged in a cottage industry, at home, where a strong father is hammering out the metal and a gentle mother is fastening it on each child. And ideally, within each home, we are helping our children, through the nurture and admonition of the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. Pray for that. Pray for your children. Children, pray for your parents. Pray for each other. We've got to win this thing. And with the Lord, I know we will. Paul then says in verse 19, on the subject of prayer, yeah, pray for each other. Pray for all the saints, but also Pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, if that's the prayer he was asking for, it sounds like the Ephesians were offering it, because it was a prayer, it was a prayer granted in great degree. Boldness? Yeah, that describes Paul pretty well an ambassador in bonds, willing to do anything and everything for the master that he served so valiantly. He then says in verse 21, as he's wrapping up this letter, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Now, we don't know much about this Tychicus or Tychicus. He seems to be Paul's letter bearer. He's a, a good minister, we're told, faithful. He's a beloved brother. Paul loves him. I mean, sure, the Ephesians will too. But when he comes and hand delivers this message to you, I hope you'll read it, but I hope you'll respond. I hope you'll tell Tychicus how you're doing and that in return he can comfort you and comfort your souls in Christ. Interesting that just back in these days, there's no email, there's no, there's no sending it out on the church website. But Tychicus, take this letter and head off to Ephesus. I wish I could go myself. I may be an ambassador in bonds more literally than the symbolic type. But then he says in verse 23 and 24, to finish this letter off, one last words of encouragement, peace be to the brethren and love. With faith. I would take all these attributes. You'll need them. But I'm offering them. Take it from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And that's his second amen. To end his second half of this beautiful epistle. By the way, when it says those who love the Lord in sincerity, the Greek word could actually be translated in incorruptibility. Like this will never go away. That's how you sense sincerity there, right? It's the real thing. But it's the permanent thing, Paul seems to be suggesting. It's immortal. It's undying. It's unending love. 
And if you love the Lord like that, oh, grace be upon you. If you love the Lord like that, you will be grounded and rooted in that love. You'll never be moved. I trust you to the Lord. And all will be well for you, my dearly beloved Ephesian saints. You know, where we started this week was in the book of Revelation. John's words to the Ephesians. And you remember what his emphases were? Apostles? You've been trying the counterfeit to see if they're true. You're built upon this, these stars that are in the right hand of the Lord. Oh, where do you think they got the ideas? Paul teaching them. And that focus in John's little postcard about the tree of life and eating the fruit. Paul's been preaching that fruit for six chapters now. Eat it. It's undying. And the love that you will feel from him, I hope you'll give right back to him and to each other. I am so moved by the epistle to the Ephesians. One of my favorite letters that Paul ever wrote. So relevant, so applicable, and so powerful. As usual, if I can just give you a quick review of some of my favorite spiritual one-liners, I hope that they will echo in memory, far beyond just the lesson that we, that we learned this week. I hope it brings back to memory some of the insights we discussed. But by way of review, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Him that filleth all in all. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. No more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. All the building fitly framed together, partakers of his promise in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence, rooted and grounded in love, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He gave some apostles and some prophets for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. No more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Speaking the truth in love, ye have not so learned Christ. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We are members one of another. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. <laughs> now you may be wondering, did he just reread the entire epistle to the Ephesians? <laughs> and eh, pretty close. There's so much here. It is worth reading and rereading. It's worth understanding where we fit in all of this. It's worth allowing Paul to introduce us to the Lord he loves and knows so well. In fact, if I can give you one last little list, it's the six times Paul emphasizes the riches of our Redeemer. I just love them, bringing them all together and just get a sense of who we worship. The riches of his grace, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, rich in mercy, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus the unsearchable riches of Christ and the riches of his glory. So to any of you who may feel poor in spirit, let the Lord invite you, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom promised you by the King of kings himself, who is rich enough in glory and in grace and in goodness to meet your every need, to pay your every debt, to comfort your every sorrow. I testify of him. He is our chief cornerstone. And that corner will hold. It is faith in him that is our shield and it is Jesus Christ that will shield us from every negative consequence. He's mighty to save. If he wills it, he will work it. If you can think it, if you can ask it, he can do exceedingly abundantly above anything that you could possibly need. That's the Lord of love. Paul knew him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to come unto him. And I pray we will. 
that we will come unto the Lord knowing that he is rich enough to give us everything we possibly need.